Good evening, comrades! Welcome to the Movie Change-Up Podcast, where each week, two people go head-to-head pitching movie reboots. I'm uh, Joe Fricky, your host, co-creator of the podcast, along with my other three co-creators here today. We've talked over since the last episode and determined that with as amount of work and effort as all three, all four of us have put in, that we all kind of deserve co-creator credit at this point, so that's where we're at. And if you didn't understand my opening, uh, apparently our TikTok is fairly large in Russia, so... We have a pretty good Russian audience. Don't know where that came from. Maybe Johnny has connections. Who knows? Uh, But yeah, the rules of our podcast. Basically, each week, two people go head-to-head pitching movie reboots. Uh, Seven movies, seven rules. They have to go and match what rule they think goes with which movie best and pitch their best version of it. Uh, Today's theme, uh, we're doing movies that won the Golden Globe for Best Motion Picture Drama. Uh, let's start off with introducing my co-judge today, uh, Tristan Meyer. Uh, how you feeling? Who you think's gonna win? What's gonna happen today? I'm feeling pretty good. You've had a nice political way of saying, oh, we're all co-founders. What he really meant was I won that title last week, and, and now I'm co-founder. But he didn't want to make anybody else feel bad, so now we're just all co-founders. All right. And I forgot I turned my TV off behind me because I was just watching Steel for my DC Daily uh, TikTok videos. And normally people vote on the on the movies I watch, but tonight I wanted to make this match a little exciting, so I decided to put uh, what I watch next on the stakes of this match. So Johnny, if you win, I'll be watching a movie I know you love deeply in your heart. Watch when the ultimate cut. <laughs> okay. And if Bobby wins, we're watching one of the greatest East movies of all time, The Dark Knight. So Johnny, I mean, if you win, yeah. that yeah, just proves that. Watchmen. <laughs> Yeah, you're basically proving Watchmen is better than Dark Knight. So, good luck, Johnny. Good luck, Bobby. I want to say I have no game in this, but I want to watch Johnny lose, so hopefully Bobby wins. Yeah, that's not biased, Judge. Not at all. I'll take it, though. All right. Uh, next up, uh, someone who I believe went 6-1 and one the last – or went only won one of the seven matches the last time they faced. Uh, Bobby, how are you feeling? What are you going to do to not let that happen this time? How are you going to – finally take down your brother i think i got some good pitches um he's always a good arguer so i got to try to combat that somehow uh and take down you know and throw out the flaws in his so that he doesn't just talk the whole time i think that's my goal all right and uh johnny what are you gonna do to maintain your dominance you've only ever lost one match in this in this league and you know what that one match joe the judge of that episode was Bobby. It was the first episode we ever did. And I haven't lost since, but I will never forgive Bobby for his ignorance. Bobby, you ignorant slut. I will destroy you um, just like I have every time we faced. I honestly don't think it will be a 6-1 victory for me this time because I think Bobby will come better prepared. Um, I think it's going to be a 7-0. It's going to be a sweep. And then I will tell Bobby to suck it. While my parents are watching. Hi, Mom and Dad. Yeah. And I also appreciate the Dan Aykroyd quote, so that's fine. Yeah. <laughs> All right. Uh, let's get to it. Uh, yeah, like I said, seven movies, seven rules. Uh, today's seven movies are Around the World in 80 Days, uh, Bohemian Rhapsody, Brokeback Mountain, One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest, Ordinary People, Sunset Boulevard, and Three Billboards Outside Ebbing, Ebbing Missouri. And, uh, uh, Tristan, you got the seven rules there. I'm pulling them up right now. They're buried somewhere in my list and list of DC notes on this account. 
Uh, if someone wants to cover for me, that All would right, be awesome. I got you, I got you. Uh, our first rule is use the nominees of the 78th Golden Globes, which is basically, you know, you had to pick someone who was nominated this year uh, in the directing category to direct your movie and then pick four actors who were nominated this year to star in your movie. Uh, they also have to turn one of their movies into a miniseries. They have to make one of their movies a mockumentary. They have to set one of their movies in the world of Mickey Mouse. They have to resurrect an actor's career for one movie. One movie must be cast with actors 60 years or older. And then one of their movies must include a character from a uh, Steven Spielberg movie. And I believe Johnny... Was, yeah, was it Johnny won the competition yep. beforehand yep. to see who goes first? Uh, so, Johnny... Uh, what movie are we doing, and who's going first? You know what? We're going to go with one. I didn't necessarily uh, think this is where I wanted to go first, but looking through my options, I think this is a good little um, kind of a warm-up fight. We're going to go with Around the World in 80 Days, and I'm going to have Bobby start, I think. Yeah. All right, so Around okay. the World in 80 Days is actually Tristan's pick, so if you've never seen this show before or haven't at least watched it this season... Uh, I picked three movies for them to do. Tristan picked three movies to do. And then we kind of collaborated on one movie. And so whoever picked the movie for them to do will be judging that round. And like I said, this is Tristan's pick. So Tristan will be judging Around the World in the 80 Days. But uh, Around the World in the 80 Days came out in 1956. Got a Rotten Tomato score of 69%. The plot of the movie is Victorian Englishman Phileas Fogg proclaims before his fellow members of a London Gentleman's Club that he can circumnavigate the globe in a mere 80 days, further boasting that he will beat the, bet the pr- princely sum of £20,000 on the success of his endeavor. With a stalwart manservant, Passepartout, alongside, he goes forth on his adventure, pursued by a dogged police inspector who suspects Fogg of chicanery. Whatever the fuck chicanery means. He, he stole from a bank. <laughs> that, that's what he yeah not no it's not charcuterie <laughs> he did it with meats and cheeses and crackers baby <laughs> that is a reference to our dad all right let's go so so i'm going first for this one um well this is where i think i was gonna go because i'm curious uh if we matched up on the rule i think it kind of fits um and i'll get kind of right to it but because I, I can't really go through my cast i am making this in the world of mickey mouse um, so the cast members are just going to be the voice actors that, um, you know, voice these characters currently or that would do it for Disney. Uh, for the director, I chose chose Steve Martino, who did the Peanuts movie, who that's a really sweet, uh, good family movie um, that with an old property that I think he can do well again with Mickey Mouse. Uh, and I'll get to which characters are involved as I go through my pitch. Uh, so Goofy is an inventor who keeps coming up with failed ideas. Pete, his neighbor, is tired of dealing with all his failed inventions, but Goofy finally thinks he has found something that will work, a hot air balloon capable of traveling the world. Pete calls Goofy a failure in front of his son in a confrontation, and Max blurts out, oh yeah, well my dad invented something that can go around the world in 80 days. Pete says, I'll tell you what, if you can make it around the world in 80 days, I'll give you enough money to build an actual laboratory, but if you don't, um, you have to give up being inventor for good and stop pestering me. Max says, he'll take the bet, won't you, Dad? Goofy stutters but wants to look cool in front of his son and shakes Pete's hand. The problem is Goofy needs someone to help operate the balloon, balloon and heads downtown to find someone that's willing to go because he doesn't want to put his son in danger. Um, after many different Mickey Mouse characters decline, uh, Donald, who seems to have just gone through a breakup, 
agrees to get, agrees to go to get back at her and kind of ignore that whole situation, not really knowing what he's getting himself into. Uh, I just played through, or we're currently playing through the first Kingdom Hearts game again, and the dynamic between Go uh, Goofy and Donald, I think, is really good in that game. So I think I wanted to use that uh, for a movie because um, they're kind of fun characters to play off each other. Uh, and then so throughout the movie, Darkwing Duck is going to be trying to chase him down because he thinks that Goofy robbed Scrooge McDuck's vault uh, and was using the balloon to get away. Uh, that kind of revolves itself at the end that it turns out to be Mortimer Mouse, but throughout the whole movie you have Darkwing Duck chasing him, and that's kind of the, uh, the cop character. Along their adventures, they get into many hijinks with cameos from other characters, including Chip and Dale, who are trying to invent a plane, um, like the Wright brothers, uh, Clarabelle Cow, uh, Huey, Dewey, and Louie, who are on vacation causing trouble on an island, uh, Taurus Bulba, who's a villain in the Darkwing Duck series, who's like a mob boss in this. Uh, Goofy accidentally picks up a suitcase with money in it, causing him to chase him down uh, with a lot of his henchmen. Uh, and then they meet an heiress named Daisy, who Donald instantly falls in love with. Uh, when they return, um, finally making it just in time for the 80 days, uh, King, Mick King Mickey and Queen Minnie have heard of their trip and offer Goofy to be their royal scientist. That's kind of my movie. He doesn't have to really. He, he tells Pete that he doesn't need his money. Kind of the goofy kind of thing to do. Doesn't doesn't uh, take him up on the bet, but gets um, put to work with uh, with royalty. All right, uh, Johnny, what do you got? All right, yeah. No, we did not use a single on this, Bobby. Um, okay. Because fuck that. So what I'm doing is I'm casting all actors six years older, and. So that is my rule choice, and here is why. We're making this Monty Python's Around the World in 80 Days. It will be directed by Terry Gilliam. The, uh, obviously, the three main leads of Monty Python uh, will be in it as John Cleese, Eric Idle, and Terry Gilliam. Um, you know, playing themselves, but all sorts of fun little characters. And I just kind of wrote out, I didn't write out a full story like Bobby, just kind of a setup for... Um, jokes and opportunities and actors that will be in it. Um, so these are my other side characters that will make appearances in the movie. I will have uh, Timothy Dalton, Pierce Brosnan, Michael Caine, Stanley Tucci, Kenneth Branagh, Hugh Grant, Emma Thompson, Judy Dench, and Carol Cleveland, um, who was also in other, other Monty Python movies. They're all over 60, um, and they're all uh, capable of being pretty funny in these, in these uh, little Monty Python sketches, I think. So um, here's my pitch. It's the return of Monty Python um, and the final kind of goodbye to uh, to them because we've lost a few members over the years. Um, so John Cleese and Eric Idle play two over-the-top inventors who claim to be able to travel around the world in 80 days in a hot air balloon. While traveling, they discover something very strange. Every time they stop down in a city, it is in a different era of history. They travel from city to city, running into famous people, including uh, Princess Diana, played by Emma Thompson, Napoleon, or Napoleon, not Napoleon Dynamite. Napoleon played by um, uh, Danny DeVito. I, I like Napoleon Dynamite. Yeah. Um, Mikhail Gorbachev played by Michael Caine. Shout out to my Russian comrades. Um, William Shakespeare played by Kenneth Branagh. Um, Bram Stoker played by Pierce Brosnan with Dracula played by Timothy Dalton. So we're going to kind of just set up fun Monty Python skits um, along that. I think this gives them an opportunity to kind of have a nice farewell tour and um, have a lot of different actors and actresses in there working with them um, who we haven't really seen do that before but are all influenced by them um, and I like the opportunity for just people to play fun characters and kind of like if you've seen um, the wet hot American summer TV show um, where they are all 
like high school, college age kids, but they're all older. That's what my movie is going to be. So Emma Thompson, who is in her sixties, is going to be Princess Diana, but they're going to treat her like she's, you know, young Princess Diana, um, things like that. And then you'll have sketches, sketches like, uh, you know, Timothy Dalton's Dracula trying to bite him, and then being like, "Are you trying to bite me?" Like things like that. Classic Monty Python, you know, um, just humor that I love. I know at least one of our judges is not a big fan of Monty Python, but I think. Between Life of Brian, Meaning of Life, and um, Holy Grail, those are three of the greatest uh, comedies ever made. And we never really got like a, we just kind of had everything go on and everyone aged and we lost a few of the members and we haven't had like a goodbye to um, the cast. And everyone's still acting like Terry Gilliam's still doing movies and John Cleese is still in movies. So that's my pitch. I'm just making a, one last Monty Python movie full of actors uh, that I love. So there we go. All right. Uh, Tristan, you're in charge of this round, so. Yeah, I like both of the pitches. I, I'm glad you guys both used two different rules. I definitely thought you guys would both use the Mickey Mouse rule this time, so Bobby used it, which is interesting. And I, my first question is for Bobby. Uh, since you're doing an animated movie and you're doing a Mickey Mouse movie, I want to get a little bit from you about the animation style. Is it going to be in the same style as the Peanuts, that kind of 3D uh, computer animation? Or are you going to try and do a throwback to, like, almost frozen style where it's, it's almost hand-drawn it's gonna be more like a disney style animation um well frozen's still like the the 3d animation so i what i was picturing is is more 2d i, I don't want to take these you know i don't really want to see goofy in like a pixar-y kind of style um so i'm sticking with the like you know an elevated version because they're really good at at using uh the 2d animation when they do it kind of like princess and the frog uh, which looked really good. So I, I'm sticking with the 2D style. I thought that would work better for the characters. Right. And Johnny, you changed up the premise a lot. I know Monty Python is kind of like a totally its own thing. So I want to get a little bit from you why you changed up the premise from the original just go around the world in eight days, use your mission, and that's it. You know, I, I think you'd have some of the same, same story elements, but it basically like the Holy Grail takes this story of King Arthur and then just uses it to get from place to place. That's what I'm doing with mine. The only thing you really need to bring back from around the world in 80 days is the hot air balloon because that's what's most iconic. I don't think you really need a bunch else. You can have some you know, things with fun little inventions, but they remade this movie in the early 2000s with Jackie Chan, and that movie was unwatchable, and they tried to do something very similar to the original but make it more modern, and I don't really want to do that. The original one is fine. It, it just, you know, it's nothing that I feel like you really need to stick to anything other than here's the famous you know, hot air balloon and they're traveling around the world and meeting fun characters because that's the whole idea of what's fun in the original, all the people they meet along the way. So I'm kind of just expanding on that and lessening the plot, but expanding on the fun aspects of it. I like that. All right, I'm excited to hear you guys argue. I want to hear some questions from Joe, though, if he has any. Yeah, I don't really have any questions. That's why I kind of threw it to you. Uh, I have, I, I basically, uh, my only, I guess I do have a question for Johnny, and that's like, how do you explain how they jump time periods, or do you just kind of feel like that's you don't. just you don't? They just, just land. They just land in France, and it's old France. They land in America, and it's modern day America. They land in right. you know different times and things like that. It, it's you don't really explain anything in the Monty Python style of humor. It's just kind of right. random. Yeah. All right, know, I'm okay British with that. Um, yeah, that's all I have. Uh, do you just want to put five minutes on the clock and let them battle it out then? Yeah, it works for me. I'm excited to hear you guys fight. All right, yeah, it's 16.46 now, so yeah, 21.46. You can... I'll stop it, so whoever wants to start. Yeah, I'll start. Um, yeah, go for it. My main issue with Bobby's is, I mean, I know it's a kid's movie, but 
that sounds unwatchable because all the characters, like Donald Duck, who can listen to the most annoying voice ever created for that amount of time? Like Donald Duck in anything past like the 40s and 50s has just been a side character in all the Mickey Mouse stuff. So I get Goofy might be your main lead and he's had a Goofy mm-hmm. movie, which kids like, I'm sure. But I can't listen to Donald Duck be the like secondary character the whole movie. It would make me want to rip my fucking ears out. Like, that sounds miserable. There's a reason that he's not a lead character in anything. Even in Kingdom Hearts, anytime he speaks, I'm like, skip forward. I do not want to hear him. So I, I think that's a problem. And it's like, if he pops up... So, so the, the whole thing, I mean, the, that's why it's a really... I think it's a fun dynamic. It's always when you have, like, a buddy cop movie or anything like that, you sometimes have someone who can get on the other guy's nerves. And, that, and, that, and Donald is a good character that get to get angry at goofy's dumb decisions and his voice kind of lends to his reactions and that but i mean if you if you've heard how donald sounds in any like modern disney like i looked up to see like kind of what they did with his voice and they kind of toned him down just a little bit so that he's not quite it's not not as grating but it still sounds like donald um and it's his personality that i think would the dynamic that would go really well with goofy uh because um like i you can picture him uh, being forced to do something like fix anything like you know try to fly up and fix some of the one of the part of the balloon or something and just being just annoyed and making like you know I mean Donald is a good grumpy you know character and that's what I want to be the dynamic with Goofy who's just innocent and fun and he's goofy like literally goofy but he's he's like the sweet innocent guy um, and I think to have the two characters that are more different dynamics like i could have yawned like i was thinking oh i could go mickey and goofy that's like a classic pairing or whatever but they're they're too similar and they i don't think that would be as fun and get into as many like hijinks where they'd be at odds with each other along the journey which i think makes it more fun to me especially in a kids movie where they can learn to get along by the end because you see them and their dynamic being so different in the beginning um, and I disagree with Kingdom Hearts of like other than like any character shouting in the middle of like casting a spell in that like I'm playing that right now so yeah that gets annoying but it is the actual cutscenes Donald's a really good character actually and he plays a curmudgeon which is you know for the most part which is what he's going to be doing in this yeah I'll um, butt in here and say that I'm I'm a fan of Donald and Goofy together in the movie so if Johnny has other attacks yeah. I wouldn't want to spend a ton of time on these yeah two. I'll, I'll I'll move past that and get to Johnny's with Johnny I mean. Monty Python, like, I love the old movies, but they haven't done anything since 1983, and I don't know if that, like, as far as together in an actual movie, and I don't know if, if for a reunion movie that I would want it to be a parody of Around the World in 80 Days, which is kind of a forgotten, it's a forgotten movie. Like you said, they tried to remake it in 2004. It was okay at best. Um, and to bring these classic guys back, I'd want them to comment on something like they did in the old ones, like King Arthur was a classic tale that everyone knows that you could parody and have fun with life of brian and stuff and like things where you, you're parodying religion and stuff and i don't really like that's that's kind of the fun they poke fun at things in a fun silly way but they do it in context to something that is either relevant or something that people will care about um, i mean no not really i mean what they mainly what they do is they just think of this would be funny and we're gonna do it and their main thing is the characters they have yeah, this one isn't like Life of Brian, which is probably the only one that has like more of a narrative tale. But yeah, they just use the tale of King Arthur to kind of do funny things around that tale and play funny characters and have other people on it be funny. That's what they're famous for. That's what their skits are. Their spam 
um, episode and skit is not comment is not commentary on anything. It's just mm-hmm. a fun skit about spam. Like that's what I thought this was a good device for it because it gives the opportunity to have skits with what they like to do with classic characters and have people play Shakespeare and Princess Diana and Bram Stoker and have like Dracula and stuff in it. You could have all of the characters in the world you want because of this premise. Your movie doesn't make sense to be anything of like. You're going to name your movie Around the World in 80 Days starring Mickey Mouse, but then it's not Mickey Mouse, it's Goofy and Donald. And the only people that know what the fuck Around the World in the 80 Days is are people who like um, Monty yeah, Python. It's an old 1956 movie that won Best Picture about Englishmen. Like, you know, pe- like I've seen it and it's entertaining in a way, you know, That's but been... Monty Python, that seems like something they would be a fan of and want to do. It makes no sense at all. So the reason it, it does because any for kids where you can show different parts of the world even if it's shown through the eyes of a mickey mouse thing is good and um i think the tale itself just lends to a fun adventure kids like fun adventures they won't they don't need to know the old one that's kind of why i was thinking this was a good pairing how many kids nowadays how popular is mickey mouse like it's it's coming back i'm I'm having having dale and ducktales and all these things are coming back if you centered on them and then made these classic characters that no one gives a shit about as side characters. Okay, I get it, but no one, no one cares. Like that's that's just not. Been five minutes, so. not, no yeah. one cares about these things. I don't. Yeah, really I was gonna say that's just not I right. Know the yeah. audience of these. knowing people with actual that actually have kids. Um, just saying that, like a lot of they're they are watching a lot of like they're putting on Disney Plus a lot of Goofy, Donald, Mickey. They're trying to bring these classic characters back, and this would be a good way for them to continue like, that. I don't know. I don't think anyone really modernly is like, you know what I'm going to show my kids? Mickey Mouse. Like, who grew up with Mickey Mouse at this point? We didn't. Me and you didn't watch Mickey Mouse when we were kids. Like, I did. I'm going to show my kids <laughs> things that I grew up with. The only reason anyone nowadays even cares about yeah. Mickey Mouse is Kingdom Hearts, and your movie's not a Kingdom Hearts movie. Well, so, I know it's been five minutes, but just to, so, Goofy has been more of the popular character than Mickey. Mickey, in almost everything, just like Kingdom Hearts, has been like, He's the king in charge of everything, but he's not a main character. And they're still trying to do that because they don't want to ruin his legacy. Um, but Goofy has been pushed, and he has become beloved, especially by people who grew up watching the Goofy movie who now have kids and will like that character and want to watch it with them and show it to them. So I think that makes it a more fun lead than picking like a Mickey or making it Kingdom Hearts, which to do that in, a, in a, around the world in 80 days doesn't make sense. Um, and yours, it, it just... It sounds too much like here's a skit, here's a skit and stuff, which could be it funny, like but yeah, but again, but I, like I don't know how life. well that translates to 2021. Um, even with does. like for for an, an audience, like you're you're going for very different audiences, and yeah. I think that there's a better device that could bring back Monty Python personally than to put him in a mediocre movie that you're remi- that we're remaking. Tristan, do you have your decision, or do you need to hear more? I think I've got my decision. All right, uh, but, Good argument to start out with, though. Yeah, we have, we have some live comments if you want to hear those first. Or... Yeah, let's see those comments. All right. Well, we can't put them on screen because, you know, technology's dumb. But <laughs> So, uh, uh, Doonslug says he hates Rule 4, which is the rule of Mickey Mouse. Uh, <laughs> Spinner58 uh, just said that chicanery equals hijinks, or that's what that means. Charcuterie. That, too. Uh, then Doonslug also says they're looking forward to the Brokeback Mountain pitches, and then just said, oh, baby. <laughs> All right. 
Uh, Just wait. Don't suck. Yeah. Also, set call refers to the fact that I'm anti Monty Python. He then he said literally said yesterday that Life of Brian is a shit movie. Welcome to welcome Joe the Tasteless Boar. Never said it's a shit movie. Said I watched the first twenty minutes of it and was like I can understand why people like this, but it's not for me. Uh, and then Paul two twenty. Welcome back, Paul. Says I thought Bobby would take that until Johnny said Monty Python. I would watch that. And then Doomsung said, Oh, thank God, Joe isn't the final say. <laughs> And then Spinner58 says, I grew up with the reruns of original Mickey Mouse Club with Mickey yeah, Mouse. <laughs> she is old. She is And then Doomsuck says, I like how Tristan always has a different setting uh, in the background. But yeah, so... That is true. You guys change it up. As far as what I think, even though my opinion doesn't matter, is that no one really won me over. No pitch either way kind of made me be like, oh, I definitely would be interested in that or oh, I think that would be popular. Uh, but the fact that I feel like, as far as I go, that Bobby had such a leg up with the fact that I'm not a big Monty Python fan, and I did grow up more with a Goofy movie and a lot of the more Mickey Mouse cartoons, but as the pitches went on, I was slightly even, maybe even leaning more towards the fact that Johnny's movie interested in me more. I would personally vote for Johnny, just because the I felt like there were better characters to pick than just, like, Goofy and Donald. Like, as a Launchpad McQuack fan, I would have been down for a Launchpad McQuack gizmo duck around the world in 80 days, but then again, I'm not picking, so my opinion does not matter. It's hard for me, because I think both of these pitches are pretty much, like, the best way you could do a movie. Like, I think Bobby's pitch is a great, like, return to form for Disney. It feels like something that they definitely would launch on Disney Plus to start off. So maybe they pilot a series or something like that to just be like, here's Goofy and Donald going on adventures through various different like Disney versions of places in the world, and I think that sounds very watchable and very entertaining. And but Johnny's just sounded a lot more like something I'd be going out to see. I'm sure I would see both of you guys, but if I heard that there was going to be a return for Monty Python, they were going to bring back Terry Gilliam, and they were going to give them this classic premise of around the world in 80 days, I think that's something that Monty Python as a concept can really run with and really get the most out of. So they both sound like really great versions of the movies that they're trying to make, but if I'm sitting there and I'm going to stream one or the other, I'm picking Johnny's, so I'll go with Johnny's on this, but a narrow win. That was big, because I was like, fuck this Mickey Mouse rule, how can you win with it? And Bobby almost did, so mm. I give you credit for that's that. That's why I won this. Hard, you did a good job fighting um, mm. that one. All right. That's a, a tough rule. I really want to see be... how you, I want to see how you do that, because as I was fighting, mm. I'm like, it's really hard to fight Mickey Mouse against Monty Python. Well, it's amazing. That's what, so my thing with it was, I figured you would go Mickey Mouse with that movie. So I was like, if I go, you know, mouse to mouse with you, you're going to win. So I went a different direction and I went, just made the movie that I wanted to see and hoped that Joe wasn't my main judge. Yeah. But he picked me anyway, so I was happy. Yeah. yeah. Um. All right, uh, Bobby, where are we going next? And who's going first? Uh, let's see. All right, let's go with, with Bohemian Rhapsody, right. um, and I'll go first. All right, that is my pick, so I am judging this round. Uh, Bohemian, Rhapsody. Bohemian Rhapsody came out in 2018. It got a 61% on Rotten Tomatoes, so somehow that movie won more Oscars than in any other movie that year. Uh, Freddie Mercury, the lead singer of Queen, defies stereotypes and convention to become one of history's most beloved entertainers. The band's revolutionary sound and popular songs lead to Queen's meteoric rise in the 1970s. After leaving the group to pursue a solo career, Mercury reunites with Queen uh, for the benefit concert Live Aid, resulting in one of the greatest performances in rock and roll history. So, 
Okay. All right, so Bohemian Rhapsody, like, I when I first saw the movie, I basically just liked the music scenes in it, and the more I watched or thought about it, like, they didn't even tell the right story for Freddie Mercury, and you can't really tell that story, I think, very well in a in a two-hour movie, so my rule is I'm going to make this into a miniseries. Um, as for my showrunner slash director, I'm going with someone who's worked in film and in TV before, and that is Jean-Marc Vallée. Uh, who directed Dallas Buyers Club, so he's worked with um, the AIDS subject before, uh, and he's also directed uh, Sharp Objects, the series, the miniseries on HBO, as well as um, Big Little Lies, which is a very popular show. Uh, and I'm, my movie's going to be kind of, or my show is going to be pretty stylistic as far as because I'm going to have flash forwards and flashbacks, and in order to tell like easily what is what, most of the characters have an older and younger kind of actor. Um, and so for my lead, I am going with someone who should have actually been the role in the first place, and that was Sasha Baron Cohen. Uh, and he was originally cast and was and is very invested in the character and wants to put it on screen, uh, And but he wanted to show the darker sides, and the, the family didn't really want to do that, or at least the band. Uh, as far as my, my older Brian May, I have Martin Freeman. My younger Brian May, I have Jamie Bell. Uh, older Roger Taylor, I have Michael Sheen. My younger, I have Aaron, Aaron Taylor-Johnson. My older, John Deacon. I have Damien Lewis, who's from like Band of Brothers, mostly a, a TV British actor. My younger, John, John Deacon. I have ja Jack Far Farthing, who's from Poldark. Uh, my Mary Austin younger is going to be Freya Maver from Skins and a lot of other British miniseries. And the older one is going to be Joan Fra Froggett from uh, Downton Abbey. Um, so a lot of people that have worked in TV and film in the past, uh, and especially in these in British shows. So my story in present time is going to show, or that at like the most flash forward time time is going to show Freddie as he's sick, dealing with AIDS, and flashing back to moments in Queen's career. The first scene in episode one is uh, a, a part that is told um, in a books about this from the band, where which is when Freddie fin finally tells his bandmates that he has AIDS. Uh, and then it flashes back to when they first met. So you kind of see the uh, dynamic and how that changed through time. Um, so like I said, it's a stylistic choice uh, because it's him flashing back. He's, he pictures himself as he is now, but a little healthier. So he gets to play the role in both time periods, kind of like how they did the flashback in like the Five Bloods where they kept everyone at the same age. But that's just going to be him because he's kind of picturing it um, and everyone else is younger so that you get when the flashbacks are happening. Um, so like for example he'll close his eyes and wake up and it'll morph into one or it'll open a door from one scene into a flashback scene um, the, the uh, older timeline shows the true story of Queen with the timing actually lining up with how it actually happened instead of in the movie where it kind of leads up to this big live aid like cinematic event um, it'll go through their timeline and their hits how they met and all that stuff but it's also um, instead of just showing a normal boring like music biopic where it's just the rise you also get the forward and him struggling um, away from so away from the band, he was being helped by Mary Austin um, to get through, you know, living with AIDS and all that, and so you get to see his struggle personally. But then with the band, they always described him as one of the funniest people they knew, and he didn't really show that to the public. And so I think Sasha Baron Cohen can show the comedic side that he is with the band. And they said he was always in high spirits, even when he was really sick. He would come in and just say, "I, you know, keep recording, guys. I just want to sing until my body can't doesn't let me anymore." Um, so I want to show the dynamic of him struggling, struggling on his own, but then with the band, he's himself, he's upbeat, funny, 
um, and it, you finally get to the buildup when the two when uh, the stories kind of collide. Um, oh, and by the way, just a couple little things are going to show. They're going to actually show him recording with David Bowie, played by Tilda Swinton, uh, recording for Under Pressure. A little thing about that. I've I've actually liked that idea for a while, but Johnny has said he likes that. Um, <laughs> And they don't it does not hold back on like the sex and drugs and all that aspect you get into the deep dark stuff kind of like you know dallas buyers club goes into that sharp objects is very dark and goes into that but you also have the triumphs of queen uh, and you still get their music throughout so it's not just dark depressing it shows the inspiration that and talent and genius that he is as long as well as the dark side that he has um so the final scene is as he dies he starts to picture himself on stage performing bohemian rhapsody and it slowly fades as, as his mind as his mind does the series ends with freddie's death but shows the inspiration he caused all right uh johnny how, what did you do for this movie so bobby and i actually went a similar direction i didn't do a mini series because i don't think you need to do it um you know too long but i think you can tell a story of him older and him younger and his prime um in a way that the movie never really showed uh that came out a couple years ago so what I'm doing is I'm using um, the 78th Golden Globe Award nominees uh, for mine. So my director is someone who um, has done a ton of different genres in his career and has made biopics that are at least really popular for most people, and that's David Fincher. He also has a good style, I think, for this. He's directed um, music uh, documentaries and stuff as well, so he can capture uh, music really well. Um, and I thought he was a good choice for this. So then my young Freddie Mercury, because I'll explain, uh, Bobby and I did something similar with this. My younger Freddie Mercury is going to be played by Riz Ahmed, who was nominated for Sound of Metal. I think he looks like him. He's a great actor. I thought Sound of Metal was excruciatingly bad, boring-wise, but he is phenomenal in it. He's so good. So um, he was the only reason that really kept me going. I would have just turned the movie off if I didn't love him in it. Um, and then my older Freddie Mercury is Sasha Baron Cohen because um, I agree I think he would also play a good Freddie Mercury but only the older one because he's older now than Freddie was when he died um, and my Mary Austin my young Mary Austin is going to be played by Carrie Mulligan who was nominated which obviously Sasha Baron Cohen was nominated for the trial of the Chicago 7 Carrie Mulligan was nominated for Promising Young Woman my older Mary Austin is going to be played by Kate Hudson I forget what she was nominated for but she was nominated for something and then um Brian May, I only have him in the, the younger uh, aspect of it, is going to be played by Austin Butler, who uh, was in Once Upon a Time in Hollywood and can play the guitar and is a musician. He's going to be Elvis in the biopic whenever that comes out. So I think um, just having someone who at least, if they play music over it, can at least look like they know what they're doing on the guitar, I think is important. And then my Jim Hutton, who was um, basically Freddie's lover for most of his life, he's only going to be in the older aspect of it. Um, and that's going to be played by Mark Ruffalo, who was nominated for his, uh, um, now I'm blanking on the name, but I just recently watched it, the uh, TV show. That was really good, the short uh, series. Um, I had everything written down, and then I didn't, and I'm going to find it. Okay, now people can look it up. Um, all right, so my film uh, is this. Uh, it's cut between two stories. The story of the younger Freddie is the recording of the album A Night at the Opera. So it takes place in 1975. And my other story with Sasha Van Cohen is Jim Hutton taking care of a very sick Freddie Mercury in 1990, basically right before he um, dies of AIDS. 
Um, and then, so I think when showcasing Freddie's life story, you need to show the highs and lows. He he was the very charismatic person in his younger days and stuff. And then he had a he had a really really rough life towards the end. And I think you can portray that. And I think Sasha Baron Cohen is perfect for the older um, one. Like Bobby said, the, originally he was cast, but he wanted to make it a darker version. So I'm allowing him to do that with mine. Um, so Riz Ahmed, Riz Ahmed plays a younger Freddie at his most creative at his peak as an artist recording Queen's biggest hit and one of their biggest albums. So that's going to be them bringing in all these different um, instruments. And at first it's going to start with them leaving um, their record company to go join the new one because it's the most expensive record at the time. It was the most expensive record ever produced. Um, so I kind of want to tell that story. I think that is peak Queen. And I think that was the only other than the musical part, like the live aid scene, the only fun part of Bohemian Rhapsody was them actually work in the album even though it wasn't actually how any of it was done so i kind of want to just get into the creation of the night at the opera writing bohemian rhapsody going in and performing that um and everyone thinking they're kind of crazy and then that coming out and then sasha baron cohen plays freddie at his weakest he's dying of aids but he is surrounded by people that love him um the only other people that are going to be in it um kate hudson is mary austin because she was with him basically till the end just as his friend, she's going to be in there. And then Mark Ruffalo as Jim Hutton, who was his lover, is going to be the one. Primarily, it's going to be him taking care of a sick um, Freddie. And it's going to end with them, you know, the album gets done in the previous one, and then it cuts to the future, and it's Freddie basically falling asleep. You don't know if he's falling asleep or passing away. Right next to Jim Hutton, they're listening to the radio, and Bohemian Rhapsody comes on. So that'll be like, and then that plays over the credits, that song. Um so mine, I think, is going to be tone similar. Like, instead of, like, Dallas Buyers Club, which is very, very dark and uh, maybe a little too dark for, like, a queen story, mine's going to be more of the tone similar to, like, a Philadelphia. Like, you're still going to have them kind of joke around with Jim Hutton and Mark Ruffalo can be good at that. And Sasha Baron Cohen can do that well while he can play a sick Freddy. He's still going to be, you know, trying to, you know, crack jokes and then he, you know, coughs and is, is sick and needs to lay down and stuff. But I think um, this is the story that I'd want to tell if I was telling – like Freddie's life, like basically his his peak, his highest point in his life and, and his lowest point in his life, and you kind of get that um, with it. I think some of the other stuff, Bohemian Rhapsody, you already have, and it only came out two years ago. I don't need a lot of that same story because I just saw it. Um, even though it was completely inaccurate, I at least saw aspects of it. Um, it was basically, I mean, they showed what happened, but it was just out of um, order. So I instead of just doing all of the classic like Freddie Mercury, I don't need his life story i just want like moments that really capture who freddie was so that's more of what my movie focuses on um and that is my pitch all right uh tristan do you got any questions for them yeah i do have a couple of questions i'm going to start with johnny uh i know you hate social network and mank was pretty terrible so why did you decide to go with venture knowing your taste and what you like in movies I think Social Network is is a good movie, and I always shit on it because everyone acts like it was this incredible film. And I don't think it is because Jesse Eisenberg annoys me, but putting away my bias, it's a well-written, well-directed movie with good performances, but I just personally hate Mark Zuckerberg, and anything you throw at me that's Facebook, I'm not going to care about. So that's the reason I hate The Social Network, even though I kind of play that up as like something I hate. And I haven't seen... Mank, but I feel like Mank is more of a David Fincher, just it was his own passion project. It wasn't something that anyone else wanted him to do. He was just like, yeah, this is my one-off. I'm going to do it. 
I think when he does, like, even like um, uh, Curious Case of Benjamin Button, that's a movie you can only watch like once. You only really need to, but it's yeah, it's a good film and it's a, a really captures human emotions. So that's kind of why I went with him. And I think he he also I forget what band, but he has done multiple um, like documentaries of musicians before and has captured their concerts. So I think he's also someone that can capture them recording in the studio really well. Um, so that's why I went with Fincher. All right, and I have one question for Bobby too. Uh, you mentioned you're pretty much going through a lot of the greatest hits of Queen, and you and you said you want to do it differently than traditional biopics. But I want to know how you're going to avoid just feeling like oh, we're running through all the big moments of his career. It, how do how do you avoid being a like sort of cliche traditional greatest hits biopic? Because when you, a lot of the time when it when uh, those greatest hits biopics happen, they are it's the it's the condensed into two hour movie, so you have to show. The rise, the fall, the rise back to fame, and happy ending or whatever type of thing. When you have a series where you can draw it out and actually tell, get in a little bit more in depth um, with his life and the challenges that he faced, where you can focus, you know, an episode more on like the addiction that he had, like addictions and stuff like that, um, in one aspect. But then you show him later on, and he's, you know, over that, but he's and he's happy, but he's sick because of the mistakes he had in the past. You kind of show the what he did when he was younger and how that impacted him when he was older um, and how he relates back to it because that's why I wanted Sasha Baron Cohen to be the actor in both of them because you get to see the dynamic more of how he was like and how different he was at different times in his life but still instead of like Johnny being a very different actor where you, it's very differentiated and you can like tell it's like oh he just emotionally is different at this time instead of oh he's just younger here and looks different and now he's older so I, I wanted to be able to show that so I think just stretching it out over a series it's not just going to be here's this event here this event you can actually get into the personal character struggles at, throughout his life instead of just the big moments and like oh they recorded this big album all right I like that I have no more questions if yeah, I don't know if you uh, some Joe yeah Tristan you basically have the exact same questions I have so I don't really have any questions and these pitches have gone you know they're both pretty long pitches so I say we just get to it uh it's you know, 43 minutes and 20 seconds now, so at 48.20, I'll stop it. But yeah, whoever wants to start, you guys can fight it out. All right, you started last time, so I'll go. But I just want to point, because you were, you were pointing out to, at my director, but David Fincher is not necessarily, like, even though he's done some music, like documentaries and stuff, he's not known for his upbeat tone and big type of things that you kind of described in yours as far as the tone of the movie. And I would rather him see his best movies are his dark, gritty his sevens, his Gone Girls, like my favorite movies of him, the Zodiacs, um, the movies where he does just straight up do a biopic, like Social Network, like you said, a lot of people really like that, but I, he tries to keep that very dark too as well, as, and then the humor is just because of the writing involved um, in, in that one, and I, I just don't think the tone of yours fits a Fincher movie, and if it did, I think it would feel out of place, and it's not what I would rather see him do, and I did kind of already describe I don't love the idea of two different actors playing Freddie in this. Um, I would rather because oh, it, Sasha Baron Cohen. No, because well, it's off. It would take me out of that show so badly if Sasha Baron Cohen was old Freddie and young Freddie. Have you ever seen Love and Mercy? Because in that yeah. movie, it's a story oh, yeah. of I have. Of, we saw uh, it together. Ryan Wilson. Yeah, and that movie's phenomenal. But if you just stuck John Cusack instead of Paul Dano, I'd be like, what the. Fuck? His age, his age is not super different. It's actually 
like you could age Sasha Baron Cohen down if you wanted, but I chose to keep him as he was at that time as far as old because I thought it would be stylistically a lot more interesting, especially when everyone else changes around him because it's showing his reflection of looking back instead of just a straight up story. So that's it's more it's going to be a little bit more visually interesting because you're going to have the character walk into scenes that go into flashbacks and the editing and stuff will be a, a flashy way that will at least keep you entertained and going between the past and the present and i want sasha baron cohen to be the one link between the two time periods um and like i said he's going to be a lot more sick and that and and so he's going to look a little like you know on the verge of you know death and sickness in in his older self and then he's going to be picturing himself at least a little bit healthier at the time but still him he's still him but it's how he would picture himself back then uh you know I'm going to be honest with you. I think you're giving Sasha Baron Cohen too much credit. I don't think he has the range to do both. I think he can play the dark version that you are saying he can. But he's also a comedian. Other than that, like he's Borat and stuff like that. But I don't know. It, like I've seen him play goofy, and I've played. I've seen him play serious. I haven't seen him be the fun Freddie Mercury that you're saying. I think yours would be better if it had a younger actor. I think Riz Ahmed is perfect for it. And they look similar. It doesn't take you out of the movie. But like I said, with Love and Mercy, like Paul Dano doesn't look anything like John Cusack. You watch that movie start to finish, it's fantastic. And it doesn't take you out either time because it's younger people surrounded by younger people playing them at their age that time. I think it's a mistake to do what you did with it. And I think that would take me out of the entire show. I also think with... Queen was a, a band of hits. If you listen to a lot of their other music, it's not very good. Queen is known for their hits. They had a lot of them, but the rest of their stuff was meh. And I feel like that's kind of yours is just bloated. Like, I want to stick to the, the classics. Like, Queen should be. Like, I want to stick to them. That's what they as tried to do in the movie. No, it's not, because in the movie, they just tried to do what you're doing, but very poorly. Yeah. And But yours, too. Okay, Walk the Line is one of the greatest um, biopics ever made, but I don't need to see Walk the Line for six to eight episodes. Like, I don't need a mini-series of that. And Johnny Cash is my favorite of all time. I want, a like, a two-hour story of this is all I need from it. There are a lot of stories you can tell for Freddie Mercury, but I don't need them all to be told by the same person. I Freddie want... Mercury is known as the best, if not one of the best, lead you know, um, singers of all time, especially in, in rock history. And he has one of the most interesting lives. They, when you try to pare it down, the, the, the problem was the movie itself. And when you make a movie, the way you're doing it, um, it sounds like the, the original, which had the band heavily involved because, so they wanted to show a lot of the band and their involvement and show them as the whole thing and not really focus on Freddie. This is going to be more of Freddie's life and then you have his accomplishments with Queen where if you're just sticking with Queen, that's how you would do it. You would do it in a movie and it's like, here's a hit, here's a hit, here's a hit. But this is a lot when Freddie is on his own because he was he was kind of living a double life where he hid from his closest friends and all that that he was gay. So you have that you can explore that story more in something that is more than just where you have to get to the hits within a two-hour time frame. You have time to let that simmer and show how it affected but, his life later and his relationship. I don't need his life story told by one person from one perspective, which yours would be. Like, it's if you're making your show, let me improve it. Every single episode is just Freddie Mercury at a different age played by a different actor. It's more like the um, 
uh, when all the different actors and actresses played, um, it wasn't Bowie, it was, uh, I don't even remember. But there Bob was one on, on Netflix, Bob Dylan. Bob Dylan is someone that I feel like you can capture with a bunch of different people. Freddie Mercury, I don't need to see six to eight episodes of Sasha Baron Cohen's take on him. I want to see two different actors in an hour each giving me their version of Freddie because no one can be Freddie Mercury other than him. You know, he was one of the most influential people to have ever lived. And I think if you're telling that story, your show sounds great if every episode it's a new cast of characters and it's a different director every episode and you have new visions on his life because that is more queen to me. That's more, oh, we lost him. Yeah. That's more, um, okay. He got so mad he just quit. Yeah, I don't know, whatever. Our entire, like, stream got fucked up, too. Oh, fun. Yeah, Joe, you were coming in super blurry for that whole pitch. You were like a... Yeah, I was a little worried. ...the Phantom Zone. (laughs) What the fuck? Am I, like, internet's actually, like, good here? I don't know. One of us going forward... I blame Bobby. One of us, someone else... Damn, I was on a roll, too. Bobby really... Yeah. If I lose, I'm blaming that. (laughs) I already know where I'm going. Yeah, Um, I do, too. I figured... If we get Bobby back on, you can make your decision. There we go. All right. I heard all that, too. So I was, I was sitting backstage for, like, 99% of that. It, I just I, I reloaded my stream because it said it basically crashed. Yeah, we're almost an hour in, and there's been two pitches, so we should yeah. <laughs> move along a little here. Right. I had some things to say, but if you have your decision, that's fine. Yeah, I have my decision. Basically, before Johnny even brought it up, one of the things I did not like about the Five Bloods was, like, the keeping the older actors in with the flashbacks that really threw me out. Uh I wasn't like the miniseries part. Like, I don't know. We the stream's gone on like like this pitch has gone on like enough. We've talked about it for like thirty minutes almost. Uh, I don't know what Tristan's thinking, but I my vote is for Johnny. Interesting. I was going the other direction actually. I think that Bobby uh, pretty much addressed all the concerns I had about the original movie. He brought in the director who I know has like a unified vision. He edits he edits his own stuff he's very like autory in his filmmaking so i think having one unified voice to tell this story is something that the original film missed and i also think the editing and the pacing which is so bad like you guys brought up a lot they changed stuff around a lot of that was because they wanted to hit that two-hour beat so so like precisely that they completely sacrificed the original story and i think that expanding it to a miniseries corrects a lot of that problems giving it to a director who has very keen eye for editing a keen eye for multiple timelines i think that's a very good pick so i, I was going with bobby on mine with split split decision here well this your guys uh, no no this one? is this is uh my total so yeah oh, i just got thrown off by the entire like stream crashing that i was <laughs> like tristan what are your thoughts after i already made my yeah. ruling but yeah but, uh, johnny gets the point oh well that mm-hmm. makes me feel better but it ended on a sour note <laughs> yeah of course, because <laughs> I, I, I thought I did. I thought I, yeah, I was all sad. I, I agreed oh, with that. Oh yeah, I don't know. Moving forward, someone else might have to try Streamlabs. I have no idea because, like, every week my computer is like, "Fuck you." Uh, yeah. I know. Uh, all right, Bobby. So where are we going next? Well, that threw me off because I thought I would win that one, especially with Johnny's pitch. Honestly, and I, I agree completely. I did say love and mercy. Yeah, that's but, it. But for right. I know. I, I even brought it up, and I was waiting for you to hit me up. I tried, but then I the stream crashed. <laughs> um, I don't even know. Let's see. Uh, again, this is a longer one, so you know what? I'm gonna go with <laughs> a shorter one. one. I'm gonna I'm gonna go with a shorter one. 
uh, and hope that I can just beat you on it and get back into this because I think it should be one to one personally. And I'm gonna, you, I'm gonna. You gave your point to the, gave the point to the wrong person, Tristan. Oh, nope, you're right. No, you didn't. No, you didn't. Tristan, Tristan, you subconsciously trying to knock out Johnny. You know, it's what I do. I get it. Tristan just hates me. Back to a zero, Bobby. I'm sorry. Damn. All right. Uh, I don't have a point. We haven't had one in a while. <laughs> you know what's really funny is we just looking at this. I'm gonna uh, just because it's kind of interesting to go this way. I'm gonna go to Sunset Boulevard. I'll let you go first. All right. That's also I've done first the first time. Okay. That's also my pick. So I'm also uh, judging this round. This is either going to be uh, real bad or... <laughs> it's in my top 25 of all time, so I don't know if that... Yeah, this was... Fuck you for picking this, Joe, because, like, how do you reboot, like, one of the great movies of our yeah. time? Not of even our time? It came out, like, 40 before. years before we were born. <laughs> of our time in terms of all of civilization. Right. All right. Oh, okay, so here's here's what I wanted to do with it, because I figured well, this is the only way that... Want me to give the background? Um, ah, so sure. Sunset Boulevard came out in 1950, 99% on Rotten Tomatoes. An aging silent film queen refuses to accept that her stardom has ended. She hires a young screenwriter to help set up her movie comeback. Uh, the screenwriter believes he can manipulate her, but he soon finds out he is wrong. The screenwriter's ambivalence about their relationship and her unwillingness to let go leads to a situation of violence, madness, and death. All right. Um, so for Sunset Boulevard, again, this is a great movie. So if you try to make a narrative film with it, I feel like you're going to fail. So I want to keep a lot of the elements, but I'm making mine a mockumentary. Um, and again, this is someone who has not done this in a long time, but my favorite mockumentary of all time is this is Spinal Tap. So my director is Rob Reiner and my writer is Christopher Guest. Um, I feel like if you're going mockumentary, I trust them to do it. Rob Reiner hasn't done anything in a while, but he's never tried this again. Um, and he loves old school Hollywood, so I feel like he would actually bring some passion to this instead of making just like another, hey, I'm going to make some money throughout a rom-com. So the only person I actually cast, or well, two people, because mine is going to be a mockumentary about film students trying to um, remake Sunset Boulevard. Um, and my actress that's playing Norma is going to be played by Abigail Breslin. And then the teacher of the class is going to be played by Stephen Merchant. Everyone else is just kind of unknowns because that what is what makes a mockumentary better. I hate mockumentaries when I recognize people in it. Um, so it's just going to be kind of just unknown people that like this is Spinal Tap was. Um, so this is my pitch, though. I'm framing mine like all of the thousands of crime documentaries we have gotten on Netflix over the past five, six years um, because – Basically, here's here's my idea. I'll keep it a little shorter, so I'll, I'll give you the summarized version since we're going long. Um, it'll be shot like a crime documentary, focusing on the death of the of one of the students who plays the character of Joe Gillis. Um, the uh, students who are in the film are all interviewed, so it cuts between interviews of the students who worked on the movie and actual things that were filmed for the movie. Um, the student playing Norma is in character the entire time. She takes it way too seriously and always wants to be Norma. Um, and at the end, it reveals she really shot Joe, just like in the movie. Um, and the last scene is her walking down the stairs uh, with like the police cameras um, showing her. And she says, all right, Mr. DeMille, I'm ready for my close-up. So it's a crime documentary because the kid was murdered. Um, so it starts off, it has similar themes to the original of her not believing that she's not a star, but we're going to kind of make that mockumentary style, making fun of it. Um, and we're actually going to have the kid who plays Joe get killed just like how he did in the original one. 
So that's my my pitch for a mockumentary version of Sunset Boulevard. All right, uh, interesting, uh, Bobby. What do you got? All right, so I went a little differently here because this is a classic, but outside of a lot of film people, like if if you go to even like um, like people who enjoy movies but are more modern, they they haven't seen this. They've more seen the parodies of this. Like American Dad did like a parody. Johnny's doing kind of a parody. Uh, I kind of I want them to see the original story done well, um, but up but updated to be because you can't really have a silent film star unless you go back and remake it as if it was back then. So. The rule I used is that I'm using the nominees from the 78 Golden Globes Johnny just used, and I'm using the director he just did, which is David Fincher, because I think he can pull off a good noir um, and tell it very well. My Norma is going to be played by Carrie Mulligan. Um, my Jose, who goes by Joe, is going to be played by Riz Ahmed. Um, my Max, who I'm changing to be instead of a former husband, is going to be uh, this person, the... Um, uh, Norma's for, or agent, and I'll get into that, is going to be played by Gary Oldman. Um, and then uh, Vanessa Kirby is going to be play, is going to play my uh, Betty. Uh, so basically, I'm going to tell a very similar story, but it's going to be about a child star who has lost it, kind of like Lindsay Lohan or Amanda Bynes, who has gone through um, stardom at a young age and then went through kind of a break. Uh, and then also kind of relate it back to Britney Spears, who's popular now, who the, the a documentary about where they were over-sexualized at a very young age. Um, I went through an emancipation with her parents, um, that type of deal, and that's why my Max is taking care of her. Uh, but I'm going to tell this story in that, um, in with that aspect where it leads to mental instability. Joe is an up-and-coming screenwriter uh, and has most of the scripts denied. He meets Norma, recognize her from her child and teen acting years. Um, she has a screenplay. It's, it, it, I don't want to go through the whole thing, but I'm basically... I'm telling a really well done Fincher noir story in the where it actually it's going to have the kind of old school narration throughout of kind of Joe's perspective and what's going on. Um, like you get the beginning, like how you know where he's in the pool and how this is how you know how I got here and all that. Um, and it's going to be a Fincher style noir, updating the story, relating it back to things that happen now with a lot of stars. Um, and I think it'll get the story out there instead of so many things I think have mocked and, and joked around about this because it's a classic thing of in the pool, wonder how I got here, then they go back and tell a story type of thing. And so I just, I didn't want to go in a comedy, comedy direction. I want people to actually keep remembering how good the story is and that it's classic uh, and maybe get people to go back to watch the original as well, but put another well done version of this out there. All right, uh, Tristan, any questions? I think I got a good idea for both of these pitches. They're running pretty long, so I, I don't want to send it out with any questions. I just want to hear them argue it out. Uh, yeah, same. I kind of know what each of your pitches are. I'll, we'll put like five minutes on the clock, and I'll stop it at five this time. And if I feel like you're kind of going over the same points, I'll stop it. So, yeah, you got five minutes. Um, I'll start. I think Bobby kind of mentioned all the points of why his film won't be good in his. It's because... The best way to do, like, okay, this movie's a classic. I don't need to see it remade, so I think the best thing you can do with that to make it relevant is mocking it. Mocking it is basically, like, the sincerest form of flattery. You know, like, when a movie is so good that you can't remake it, I think doing something like this would be fun. And what do I always talk about? Anytime we talk about a parody of something, I feel like it needs to encapsulate, like, um, years of something being done. And all of these crime documentaries, like Making of a Murderer and stuff, 
that was like the epitome of it. But Netflix has been doing this since Netflix was created. So I think we have enough of a base to do this off of. And we haven't really seen outside of like one episode of It's Always Sunny. That's great. Um, we haven't really seen anyone kind of make fun of these in a great way. Other than um, the one where like all the dicks are drawn in the school, which is really funny. American Vandal. If you've ever seen that, I want to kind of do something similar, but with a, like more of a professional um, person like behind the, the camera. And it's basically while mine is going to be a crime documentary narratively, it's going to be very similar. It's going to be the girl who thinks she's Norma going crazy like Norma. Um, and that's going to be like the main element of it. So I think that's a fun little twist on the story. So you can actually, you're telling the story of Sunset Boulevard without actually remaking it. I think mine's a creative way to do that. And I think that's the best type of mockumentary. That's what this is Spinal Tap is. It's a, you know, it's treats them like a real band and this is going to do that. Yeah. Well, but the thing is you chose it, you did a mockumentary and you chose someone who made one of the best of all time, but it's really the only movie he's done in that style. And he hasn't done it in a long time, and most of the movies he's put out recently have been mediocre, which you mentioned. And also, you're you're mocking something that is a modern trend, basically, that you need to be kind of in the know of what's going on, how it's in the context of today. Rob Reiner is old school. He's going to know the original Sunset Boulevard, but is he going to be able to mock what you're trying to mock enough? So that's where you need most of the commentary, because a lot of people going to see this movie are not going to know the original um, Sunset Boulevard. If you're setting that as your context, people are going to be, oh, I, I like these crime documentaries and that. So you, you're not trying to mock that movie, and and you know even if you're very true to that story, that's not going to come across to the audience that might go to see this. But the, um, you know, if you had chose someone a little more modern that is going to mock, maybe someone who's, who's even done a, you know, modern docu mockumentaries, modern comedies, that would be able to put a better perspective on it. I think that's a better choice. Um, for yours and then for mine I just think again this story has not been told seriously in a long time it's been parodied as it should not it's be. been parodied like, it yeah, should but, not be but, yeah but you don't want to lose it and I think look movies are classics but you do end up other than film snobs and like and I'm one of them I'm a film snob I, and a film purist whatever you want to like a film fan you Fucking you don't you don't um, you, you lose a lot of these old movies for the general public um, and it's only when it gets brought back into light somehow that... Yeah, but this is the way you bring it back out. You have a pandemic and you start putting it in theaters afterwards. Like, if I'm going... I, if I want to see Sunset Boulevard, I'll just Those see the original Those don't make one. any money. Those don't make any money. It doesn't release. matter about money. That means you know, people you don't We're film snob. I'm going to see it. it. I don't... No one's going to see your movie. How many actual people outside of film snob watch Mank? Your movie sounds like Mank. It's just no, it sounds doing like a love letter to old school Hollywood, which is him at his, at his worst. Fincher at his worst is... No, it's noir not fucking yeah, noir. It's, it's not Zodiac, noir. all right? It's not any of those. It's not like what you criticized me on. I want a different direction, something Fincher's never done. You just made Mank again. Like, if no, Fincher was redoing an old school Hollywood movie, it would just come off like that. You might as well be like, oh, Fincher, I want him to do Citizen Kane because that movie should be remade. Um, no, you shouldn't. You should just make mockumentaries and fun parodies of old things. And maybe you, maybe someone goes and sees my movie, and you know, crime documentaries are a big thing. And they go, "What's Sunset Boulevard?" And then they go check it out. Your movie, they're just like, "Oh, that looks boring. I'm not going to see that." 
the people mine actually brings more people to the original movie than yours it tells the story better than yours mine's not going to have a lot of the same things you hit on rob reiner for being like old and not knowing what crime documentaries are he's still very much on twitter and in the public eye he knows what netflix is like everyone in the world has watched netflix movies but this angelica's, is the style angelica's, of angelica's grandpa typically. Who, typically anymore because he but he should go back to it not that this is the rule but i'm fucking resurrecting this motherfucker's career he's great and if you don't think he can do like modern comedy just watch wolf of wall street he didn't direct it but acting in it he told a lot of things that wasn't his style or things you're not used to seeing rob reiner do so he has range no matter what he does all right i got I, my rob I got reiner's my a great choice for it i got my ruling uh okay. kristen what are your thoughts it was a good argument, but I think Bobby had it for me pretty much the whole time. I think he his Fincher, obviously, if we're going to use the Golden Globe winners, you guys both use Fincher, and I think he just matched Fincher a little bit better. I think Mank was a huge mess, but I think the best parts of Mank were the parts where he's on set. They're showing the studios in action. They're showing the practical effects. They're showing how Citizen Kane movies around the era were literally made, and I think Bobby's movie gets a little bit a prop to me because it can get into that the actually good part of make and not just Gary Oldman like ranting about politics for like two hours so I think he could get the most out of Finch's love for old Hollywood while also getting his kind of noir style out there again I don't know if it's going to bring in new audiences because like Johnny said the Fincher audience is just film snobs anyway <laughs> but I think if he gets it out on Netflix he gets it out in front of people it could be something people watch and people like so my vote's going for Bobby yeah, I think during Johnny's ranting was like it was very clear he hadn't seen Mank because Mank was not really about a remake of Citizen Kane or anything really related to Citizen what Kane. What I mean it was, was it was his yeah. Johnny what always Mank does was, this in the rulings. <laughs> but what Mank was literally if you look at Mank and you say, Well, what is the marketing behind Mank? It's oh it's David Fincher's love letter to old school Hollywood. Right. That's Stop what Bobby's interjecting in the in the ruling, we gotta get moving. Yeah, but it's yeah. not my fault. Joe's just big Alright, so <laughs> my thing is i feel like i feel like me and johnny have very different philosophies of when it comes to like pitching and grading pitches and like i obviously go for like what would entertain me and what would i like but i think the thing against johnny's is like sunset boulevard isn't really in the public eye except for you know the mocking and the parodies isn't his is just like another parody and if you hadn't seen sunset boulevard i don't know how much you would understand or get the jokes in his movie and i feel like fincher fits bobby's movie of like what he was trying to pitch it is a noir movie and i like the way he updated it with including some of the britney spears kind of storyline and replacing it with or like replacing the silent film star storyline so i'm gonna actually go with bobby's disagree right. should be up right now but i'll take it <laughs> <laughs> yeah you've got one on the score board bobby yeah. now it's two to one going in all right where are we going johnny i need a win you're up two to one. You're acting like you're yeah. Down. No, you don't like, need a win. <laughs> no, trust me, I need a win. <laughs> um, I don't like. I'm not gonna tie this shit up. You know what? Fuck it. I'm gonna go with um. I'm just gonna get one of my longest ones out of the way. Probably my longest. I'm gonna go with one floor of the cuckoo's nest. My, my longest too. <laughs> All right. Oh, fun. Um, so I'll let Bobby's go first. So mine stays fresher in the judge's mind. All right, so One Floor of the Cuckoo's Nest is uh, another one of mine. I think maybe my last one. I don't Joe's know. just like, hey, pick movies that can't fucking be rebooted. Yeah, so. All of the best ones. 
One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest came out in 1975. It has a 94% on Rotten Tomatoes. When Randall Patrick McMurphy gets transferred for evaluation from a prison farm to a mental institution, he assumes it will be a less restrictive environment. But the Martinet nurse ratchet runs the psychiatric ward with an iron fist, keeping her patients cowed through abuse, medication, and sessions of electroconvulsive therapy. The battle of wills between the rebellious McMurphy and the inflexible ratchet soon affects all of the ward's patients. All right. Uh, wait, who's going first? You said I was going first. All right, so for one thing, I'm changing the name of my movie because I'm not setting it in uh, in the same... It's not going to be in the same setting. Mine's going to be called One Flew the Coop, uh, and it's going to be set in a retirement home or a nursing home. Um, but it's the only way to kind of keep the kind of pun. You know, you know what you're doing with that title, and it fits my movie. Uh, my director is going to be Alexander Payne, who did Nebraska... Uh, and The Descendants. I want someone who's worked with older actors before, because everyone in this is going to be over 60 and got a good a good performance out of Bruce Dern um, and The Descendants, which is a good kind of family drama. Uh, and my my Randall is going to be played by Michael Douglas, who produced the first film. He's going to be my main character. Uh, my nurse, Malum, which I changed, just it's not the same movie, so it's not Nurse Ratchet. That means evil. Uh, is going to be played by Michelle Pfeiffer. Um, she's going to be the nurse. Tommy Lee Jones is going to be in there as a grumpy older character who uh, learns to interact more with everyone eventually in the movie. Mark Hamill is going to play someone suffering from dementia and acts kind of kooky at times uh, because of it. Diane Keaton is going to be an older woman who uh, has no family that let that Randall befriend. Um, Helen Mirren is going to be Diane Keaton's friend who she takes care of because she's losing her memory. Uh, Gil Birmingham from Hell or High Water, the partner of uh, Jeff Bridges in that, is going to be a friendly worker uh, at the home. Um, who's scared of Nurse Malum and kind of goes along with her orders. And then William Peterson, who's most well-known now for being in CSI, but he is a good actor, has been in a lot of movies in the past, uh, is going to be a retired professor who's frustrated that his mind isn't uh, what it once was. So I didn't really name a lot of the characters. You can throw them on there if you want, but just so you know who I'm talking about, I'm going to use the actors' names other than Randall, who is Michael Douglas, and then the nurse, who is Michelle Pfeiffer. So Randall Jones, or Randall has grown increasingly tired of his family, who he thinks is just waiting for him to die for his inheritance. He fakes starting to lose his memory to be put into a nursing home to be away from them. He befriends Diane Keaton's character as, as amongst the others um, pretty quickly uh, with his cheerful, cheerful attitude, um, which quickly makes him popular amongst the other retirees. He quickly finds that the head nurse, Nurse Malum, is very abusive, uh, especially to those who have problems with memory. Uh, this is something that goes is a problem in nursing homes currently, and they they suffer a lot of mental and physical abuse when there is, uh, you know, someone who's taking advantage of them since they can't remember. She emotionally and physically assaults them since they won't remember, but um, but they still suffer the side effects. Uh, she also confiscates their confiscates their cell phones and electronic devices, um, and keeps them in her office because um, they can't be trusted with them. Now we have a similar story, but in the retirement home, or Randall does his best to keep everyone's spirits up while breaking the rules and putting a little fun back into the building um, while also facing the wrath of Nurse Malum. There's a running gag where Randall's trying to get Tommy Lee Jones to join the fun. Then at the end of the movie, they finally get him to sing Elvis's Hound Dog at a karaoke, a uh, little karaoke event they have and everyone cheers. Um, the nurse throughout uh, threatens Randall, takes away his privileges, saying that he's too dangerous. it's too dangerous for an Alzheimer's patient to be participating in group activities. Um, Randall also starts feeling more sluggish, uh, melancholy, and forgetting and, and melancholy, and actually starts forgetting simple things, um, realizing that it must be the medication that that, that Nurse Malum is giving out. 
Um, after getting to know William Peterson's character, he asked him why he's really there. He seemed like he's able to take care of himself and didn't really seem to suffer from any memory loss, as he could tell. Um, throughout their conversations, he eventually reveals that um, even the slightest loss of intelligence from his time with a professor sent him into a deep depression, and his family didn't know how to handle it, um, so they sent him there. Uh, together, they work out a plan to try to reveal Nurse Malum's abuse to the public and hopefully have her fired. During an activity, Randall asks to go to the bathroom, and the nurse escorts him. But when but Will, William Peterson's character distracts her briefly, and Randall has a brief has a conversation with the Gil Birmingham, the worker character. Uh, he goes to the bathroom and comes back with the nurse. But the next day, um, and then the next day, nurse the nurse Malum gets into a screaming rage at uh, Mark Hamill's character, who is clearly confused and overwhelmed. She even hits him across the head. She looks over at Randall and Randall and sees he's recording the whole thing with the cell phone. He had gotten the worker's badge and snuck into their, her office the previous night. She yells, where'd you get that? But it was too late. Randall had sent the video along with her name and the name of the nursing home onto the internet. Uh, she hits Randall so hard across the head, it knocks him out. When he awakens, he finds that Nurse Malum had been fired. Uh, the nursing home had acted quickly, saying that they had no knowledge of her behavior. Um, and then Will and Williams Peterson, William Peterson's character walks in to him saying, with a suitcase saying, thank you, I think I can handle the world again. And he leaves. Randall smiles but looks confused as he uh, looks at his surroundings and you realize he truly is losing his memory. Wow. All right. Sorry, I fell asleep. Um, all right, so I feel like I have memory loss uh, after that pitch. Um, I'm going the only way. Wonder doesn't really... always mean bad. You know, boring is that you pitch. I'm going to pitch um, something more based off um, characters from the book, more of that tone. Um, the book is phenomenal. I highly recommend the Audible. I think it's Ken Casey or Kesey who does the uh, narration. Um, and the book is all told from the chief's perspective. Um, while the movie focuses on Randall, um, this really kind of gets more in-depth of some of the other characters. So that is what my miniseries is going to be about. There's no McMurphy in mine. There's no Randall. There's no... R.P. McMurphy, because you can't recast him. Um, he was, Jack Nicholson was perfect in the original. So what I'm going to do is I'm going to do a mini-series. It's going to be six episodes. It's going to be directed by uh, Derek C. in France, who this was what I was trying to think of earlier. I know this much is true. That's the Mark Ruffalo thing. That deals with mental illness really well. It's phenomenally acted. He also did The Place Beyond the Pines. Um, and uh, he's just a great director, and he's done a mini-series before. So that's what mine is. And I'll just kind of give you, it's going to be long, but I'm going to take a sip of water. I'm going to give you episode by episode. So, episode one is Billy Bibbit. Billy Bibbit, played by originally Glad Dourif, um, uh, is going to be played by Cody Smith McPhee, who was in Let Me In and Slow West. Um, and then I have a character named Jackie that's going to be played by Thomasin McKenzie. She was in Leave No Trace and Jojo Rabbits. And then Mrs. Bibbit, Billy's mom, is going to be played by Sally Hawkins, who was in Shape of Water and bunch of uh, famous movies so this is like the long one and then everything else i kind of have a short summary of so this is my pitch for episode one billy is an awkward young man who lives alone with his overprotective and emotionally abusive mother billy wants to fit in with the other teenagers in his neighborhood but is bullied by the other boys he really wants to gain the affection of jackie the girl who lives down the street from him jackie sees the other boys picking on billy and tells them off she goes for a walk with billy at first, Billy is so nervous he can barely put two words together without stuttering. But as Jackie talks to him, he starts to feel more confident. His stutter almost entirely goes away by the time they get they get back to Billy's house. 
He tells Jackie that she cannot come home or cannot come in because he does not want his mother to see her. Jackie understands and gives Billy a small kiss before she goes. Billy walks into the house smiling and blushing until he sees his mother standing in the kitchen, staring at him. There is an intense scene where his mother yells at him. Billy goes back to barely being able to speak. Um, while she is insulting him, he grabs a knife from the kitchen. He holds it over his wrist, but his mom calms him down by saying she is only trying to protect her son. The episode ends with Billy being checked into the mental institution by his mother. Episode two is Martini. Martini is going to be played by John Carroll Lynch. That was originally uh, Danny DeVito's character in the original, um, who was in The Founder, American Horror Story, Fargo. He is just a great character actor, and he has the look I want to go for. Um, and then there's going to be a mysterious man that's going to be played by Wes Bentley, uh, who is in American Beauty, American Horror Story. Um, this is the story of a man suffering from hallucinations and gambling addiction. He gains a lot of debt because an imaginary man he sees tells him to keep betting more and more. Martini is arrested for grabbing chips off the poker table and making a break for it out of the casino. He is arrested and sent to the mental institution um, for claiming that a man who doesn't exist told him to do these things. Episode three is Max Tabor. Um, Tabor is um, played by uh, Chris Lloyd in the original. Um, and that I want uh, Jimmy Simpson, who is in It's Always Sunny as one of the McFoyles, and Psych, another famous character actor. Max Tabor is a man working in an office building who slowly starts to believe there is a conspiracy to kill him. He starts hearing voices of his co-workers talking about the secret plot and starts to dream about his own murder. The episode ends with Tabor pulling a gun in his office saying he knows they plan to kill him. He does not end up firing any shots before he's arrested and institutionalized. Episode four is Cheswick, um, who in the original, uh, that is the one who is uh, voluntarily in there, you find out in the film. Um, in the book, it's more of he's in there and he can only be released when Nurse Ratchet says, and he ends up killing himself because he knows Nurse Ratchet will never let him leave. That's not in the movie. But that's uh, my Cheswick is going to be played by Paul Giamatti. Um, that is a man who is full of ideas and wants everything to change at his loan company, but is always too afraid to voice his opinions. One day, he finally lets loose and shouts at his boss, finally telling him off. Um, but then he is so afraid of the confrontation, he leaves and checks himself into the hospital uh, voluntarily to avoid any conflict. Um, and then episode five is Dale Harding. Uh, that's the mustachioed man who's kind of the leader before uh, McMurphy comes in in the movie. Uh, my Harding is going to be played by Mark Duplass, who is in Creep and The League and a bunch of uh, small indie movies. And uh, Dale Harding, he's a married man who is suppressing his homosexuality. He is tempted by a gay prostitute and later tries to commit suicide. He is then sent to the mental hospital because he would rather admit to being crazy than being gay. Um, and then episode six is Chief. And Chief is going to be narrating every episode. So you're going to be hearing the voice, but you don't see him until episode six. That's going to be played by the only man who could play Chief nowadays. That's Gail Birmingham, who is in Hell or High Water. Um, he has the look, he is a Native American, he's a great actor, I think he's perfect for it. So this is my last episode. So Chief, he's a war hero and he's taking care of his um, mentally ill parents. He sees the cruel treatment his people get in the country and believes there to be a, how a higher power oppressing his people. After a bar fight one night, he is almost arrested but runs away from the police. He learns that he needs to avoid confrontation and decides to act as a mute in order for incidents like this to never happen again. One night, he is minding his own business and is uh, berated by drunken men in a pub. He snaps and beats the man half to death without saying a word. 
he is sentenced to the institution because of his mute behavior. He is diagnosed with mental illness. So that is my show. It's kind of the origin story of all of the famous characters in it. I think that's a really great way to kind of give backgrounds because the book did that really well. Chief kind of narrates and tells you the backgrounds of all the characters and the movie doesn't really get into that. The, the original movie is perfect. It's one of the best movies ever made. You can't change anything from it. You can't just take that and adapt it into some new old folks home bullshit. I want to dive deep into the characters because there's some really, really interesting ones, um, especially in in the in the book and in the film. You kind of get glimpses, but I want to see more of it. So I think that's a good way to kind of do it. I would be super into watching this. And unlike the shitty Ratchet show that came out, I don't want to take the most famous character and just do a show about that. I want to dive into the characters I don't know about from a movie that I love. I want to know more about that. I don't want to see McMurphy's story again. I don't want to see them try to copy the original story. And I definitely don't need to know the origin story of Nurse Ratchet. So this is what I'm doing uh, with mine. All right. It's uh, Clover's Cuckoo's Nest. Uh, Tristan, any questions for him? Yeah, I have a, two questions really quick to get to. Johnny, you mentioned a lot how you want to uh, keep it faithful to the book and you have it all in Chief's perspective. And one of the more interesting things about the book compared to the movie was that it's slightly unreliable. We're seeing a lot of things described to us that through Chief's perspective we know aren't real, but he's seeing them as real. So does your movie play with the perspective at all of Chief and what he's narrating and whether or not what we're seeing is accurate or is everything we see kind of straight and to the point? It's going to be, if you know the book, you know that these might not be their real stories because it's Chief telling them as he is in the hospital. But if you've never seen the original or you don't know the book or you've only seen the original and you watch this, it plays out like a narrative um, thing that doesn't take you out of it if you don't know that um, from the book. But I think it's a good way to, it kind of leaves it up to interpretation a little bit. But if you don't know the source material, then you just watch it and you're like, oh, these are fun characters and then it's dark and it has a lot of things that I want to see. So I think that's the best way to do that without addressing it. And my question for Bobby is just a little bit on your tone. I wasn't quite sure how well you were walking between like comedy and drama. I know the original kind of plays in the middle too, and I think yours has some potential for that. But I just wanted to get a better picture of what tone you're going for in your movie because I think Johnny's was about a lot clearer. Yeah, so it is more like if you've seen Nebraska, it which is has the darker moments of him or of downsizing. Like, yeah, but okay, I'm focusing on like just like you did with yours with uh, your last director, but Nebraska and the Descendants, where it's a serious um, story that's being told, but you have very fun characters and moments. That's why I was saying, um, you know, he brings the fun back into this community and brings them together, and like, and and that. So you have him being funny and charismatic, Michael Douglas's character, um, which, uh, and then you have you know the other characters that have their quirks when like like Tommy Lee Jones with the karaoke, like picture him singing Elvis. Like there's going to be funny moments, but then brought back into, oh, there is a really serious thing going on here when, when the abuse happens. And it's, it's more, it's more in the line of the tone of the original, um, but balanced in, I think a, a good way, which that I think that Alexander Payne can do. All right. That's all the questions I had. What do you got, Joe? Oh yeah. My question for, you kind of already asked my question for, Bobby I wasn't sure about the tone and then my thing for Johnny is is there a reason like you didn't give kind of anything at the end of them all together like obviously there's the movie but if this is separate from the movie like basically is the movie the ending of this miniseries or 
So at the end, I would just cut to Chief being silent in the corner like his film, and he looks at the group. And you don't get a glimpse of McMurphy. You just hear someone talking, but you see all the characters sitting in a circle around this ratchet. Mm -hmm. So that's how mine would, like, end. And then it would, you know, cut to a shot of Chief's face, and then uh, um, it would end. So you would kind of bring them all in in the last, like, second. I tried to keep everything shorter. I had more detailed things. But as I was writing it, I was like, I can't do six full-ass plots for episodes for everything. So it would kind of start and end with, with Chief, but I wanted to save him for, like, my episode six thing. Right. Um, but, it, yeah, so that's why. Yeah, I'm kind of leaning uh, one way, so I'll give you five minutes, but I'll, I might cut it short. So, yeah, you guys can fight, fight it out. Okay. Um, I guess I'll go first. So, Johnny, like you brought up Ratchet, but I think you're kind of doing a similar, like, you're telling a miniseries of something that just had a miniseries. Uh, and you're doing an origin story of the characters, which is what they mm-hmm. did for Ratchet. I know that you said Ratchet's not the one you want to see, and you'd rather see this, but they just did yeah. this for the same movie. And, and people liked it. And I mean, not... I wasn't into it, but people liked it. So I think it would just right. build off. But the but like you said, like people might like that, but the reason they like it is the reason you wouldn't like it. I don't think it would draw an audience because no one really remembers these characters. They remember Nurse Ratchet, and they remember Jack Nicholson in the movie. Um, and I don't know if this sounds that interesting where you're just telling an origin story of each person without the actual conflict that happens in the movie and the actual events like you're i don't know if you're actually telling a story or just saying here's this person and this is why they're here here's this person and this is why they're here that doesn't sound very interesting to me and it just sounds like you're setting up the movie personally whereas mine retells the story in a in a context that i think is at least different but is something that is being focused on, which is elder abuse in nursing homes and especially within like the memory care department, which is a thing that happens and gets a lot of attention. They just had a big thing in New York. So make a different movie, Bobby. Don't fucking relate it to this because I'm, the whole time you're reading yours, I thought yours was a comedy. The whole movie, until you're like, oh, elder abuse is a serious problem. I'm like, what? How are you bringing that into a, what sounds like a parody of One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest with old people? Your movie is a parody. If you throw in basically a couple word changes, yours is just a parody. I thought yours was about to be a mockumentary when you started it because you said One Flew Over the Coop or whatever the fuck you said. That sounds awful. Which is left, one yeah. left home. One, one home yeah. Yeah, my problem with yours, Bobby, is I've seen the perfect story of One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest. You can kind of change the narrative, make them older, but you're telling the same thing and in a more boring way with a director who I think is good. I love Nebraska, but you tried to say you tried to sell me on the serious moments in Nebraska. Any moment that is somewhat serious in Nebraska is broken up by jokes. And I like it. It's a great comedy, but I'm not going to sit here and tell you, yeah, this is a great, you know, serious film that depicts elder abuse. Same with The Descendants. That's a comedy. You know, it kind of feels... You wouldn't call that a comedy. I would. I think the strongest elements of that are the the comedic aspects, and I think I don't need comedy in One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest. You have R.P. McMurphy being this crazy character, and you have him having fun, but I wouldn't necessarily point out and be like, yeah, this was like a clear joke that they told or things like that. So I don't love the tone of yours. I think it needs to be kind of a darker story. And you're comparing mine to Ratchet. You throw the name on there... This is not Sunset Boulevard. People know what this movie is. This is one of the most highly voted on and rated movies on IMDb and all of these websites. People are going to watch it if you if you throw that name on there. 
And people do remember these characters. People watch that back and they're like, oh yeah, Danny DeVito's in this and Chris Lloyd. Like, they're big actors that were in it. It's not like they're just side characters. Yeah. That, but that the, the problem is, can you, all right, just because I, I don't understand what, what is the actual story you're telling? Is it just the characters? Because if it's just one character's backstory each episode and then you finally lead up to the chief, I don't, that doesn't sound like an interesting story to be told to me. So, you, uh, so, so you, when you watch One Flew of the Cuckoo's Nest, you're never like, how did this guy get here? That is what I think of every yeah, time but you, I watch that. Yeah, you can do that, and you don't need a full episode on each you character. Do, you, do, you do. And you, and you're that's why I didn't tell – that's why I did six episodes of – That's why I did one thing. The narrative is these are real things that people suffer from, and if you know the movie, you know what ends up happening because, like – this kind of tells you the backstory of how they got there. And then while yours deals with elder abuse, mine deals with real abuse in the thing that you've seen before. So it's like the backstory mm -hmm. to that, you know, okay, this is how this guy ended up here and he didn't deserve to be here. Or, you know, he got here for different reasons than I, than I thought. And it kind of gives you more information about characters that I think are fantastic and you can play them out. Your movie, Bobby sounds like the episode of it's always sunny in Philadelphia when Frank does the, parody of one floor of the cuckoo's nest he goes in a little mental institution you have the whole chief thing and it's just old people basically doing one floor of the cuckoo's nest and it's it's a funny episode but i don't need to see a fucking movie of it your movie was done better with half an episode of it's always sunny and mine tells new stories of characters you have not seen bases off um things that have been done before and you keep talking about every time you fucking pitch the thing that pisses me off is you're like Oh, the general public wouldn't pick. I don't give a flying fuck no. about the general public, Bobby. Me and Earl the Dying Girls in my top 20 yeah. movies of the decade. I didn't throw that on because I'm like, yeah, people really saw this. I do not care what anyone else wants to see. I made a show that I want to see that I think fans of One for the Cuckoo's Nest would want to see. And, you know, I think I made the only yeah. version of this that would be interesting and rebootable. Yours is but just, I saw your movie and be like, why the fuck did they make this? This you, is awesome. but the thing is, you also you combine two rules. It seemed like, but you did. Let's do a mini series, and you also did. Let's make a prequel to the original. You're not telling because even when we pitch movies um, differently and we're changing in context, but you still got to generally make it that movie. You're just making a mini series about this is this is these are the characters other than the two leads, and this is just who they are and you're not telling the actual story of one flew over the cuckoo's nest so I, I don't i don't think chief. you're telling the story of chief because you have Which him is not the in movie. the movie you have Chief's story if you watch it back like that's the most interesting thing in the movie and this expands more on that because he is the the key voice of my miniseries you know it has every character but it's chief telling their stories it's chief telling his story and it kind of builds up to how he got there and i think that is really the point of the movie of this is why these characters got there the movie itself is just basically how mcmurphy got there and so if you make that movie a reboot but just do it based on how chief got there or how martini got there it's the it's a very similar film you know i i just don't have a lot of the stuff in the actual institution because we've seen it before the problem with reboots is yeah, we're just going to, you know, make Sunset Boulevard again the same with new people. And it's going to suck, but the judges will pick it. Like, I don't need to see yours. No, but, not but one. Actually All right, I got my, I got my ruling. The movie. 
Uh, Tristan, what are your thoughts? I'm glad that I'm not making the final call here because I really do think they both, similar to the first uh, movie, they both pitch very good versions of what they're trying to do. I think Bobby, his story sounds like something my 70-year-old aunt would really love. <laughs> and and right. that's like a demographic to go for. And I'm not going to like knock him for doing something that I personally wouldn't maybe get the most out of. I think he did like an old person dramatic comedy the best way you could. So I think he used his rule well. I think his that's director can balance the tones really well. So I think his sounds like a movie that would be successful and be good. But Johnny's does just sound like something that I would rather watch. I'm, I'm, I agree with Bobby's criticism that this doesn't necessarily feel like there's really even a story here. You're giving, you're giving the origins of these characters, but I don't really know how the origin of the character is going to be interesting for like an hour. You know, and when you watch something like Orange is the New Black, the flashback is like five minutes. And then most of the story is them together, them in the prison. So I don't know how you're going to make a flashback interesting for an entire episode. But I would be curious enough to watch it. So I'm, I'm split on this movie. I'm glad Joey's making the final call. But if I was to have to give out an award, I'd probably give it to Johnny. But Bobby's, I think, is, is a good use to rule in a promising movie. Yeah, see, my thing is, I think if... I, see, I disagree with like the balancing the, of the tones. I almost feel like Bobby's would be better if he just went, like, hey, the first one was a very, like incredible drama and try to write his and almost make his a full-on like comedic version in an old folks home and you could still like maybe include some of the things of elder abuse but them like fighting back and make it a good comedy i feel like he tried to balance the tones and it almost didn't work like as he was pitching i was high on his movie and then i was super low on his movie and then i was high on his movie and super low on his movie and i feel like the thing with johnny's is i feel like if there was more of a narrative structure like the first maybe five episodes instead were like what his was and then the sixth episode or if he had a seventh episode that was more of them together or maybe you have an episode of them together to start and then the like last six episodes are their you know backstories and so i don't know like who's i i don't know if it's gonna be easy to get like anyone to really care about his movie or if like people are just gonna watch his miniseries and at the end question like what was the point of that but at the end of it i feel like what would be better and what i think would get more interest from people would be johnny's like anthology miniseries of one flew over the cuckoo's nest yeah i thought i fucked up here because my original I was seven episodes, and I um, the last episode was them in the institution, and then the it ends with McMurphy being introduced to the group. But I was like, I don't know what a miniseries is. I think it has to be like six episodes. So no, a miniseries could have been that. like to me a miniseries yeah. could be if you had pitched it's twelve episodes one season, I would have been like, sure, fine. That's it's a just oh, it's a single season that doesn't get a second one. It's a limited yeah. miniseries, yeah, whatever. Yeah, you honestly, if yeah. you had pitched that and the seventh, there were seven episodes and the seventh episode was them all together, I probably would have just made Bobby defend his for like one minute and then yeah, it would have been a runaway it. win if you were just. Yeah, I should have just mentioned that and done it, but I'm reading my pitch and I'm like, oh fuck, I didn't even type this out. My pitch is so long, so I'm glad I still won, but I did fuck up my my pitch because I yeah. did intend that originally, yeah. and then I started focusing on goddamn yeah. whatever movie I lost. Alright. It's three to one now, so Bobby, you gotta, yeah, Bobby, you gotta, you gotta win out. Alright. I'm gonna do one that I know Johnny's not a fan of, and I'm gonna make him go first, and that's three billboards outside Ebbing, Missouri. Alright, that's the one I yeah. think we're collaborated on that we picked together, so that's 
That's a we both do hate Johnny and want to see him get mad. So That's a co-decision, and I'll read the back on three billboards outside of Emming, Missouri. came out in 2017. Got a 90% on Rotten Tomatoes. Uh, after months have passed without a culprit in her daughter's murder case, Mildred Hayes has a, makes a bold move, painting three signs leading into her town with a controversial message directed at William Willoughby, the town's revered chief of police. When a second-in-command, Officer Dixon, an immature mother's boy with a penchant for violence, gets involved, the battle is only exacerbated. Hey, Lord, I know the meaning of. All right. Uh, who, who's going first? Uh, Johnny. All right. I'm going first. So, here's my thing with three billboards. I think it tells a good story, but they fucked it up so much because they just they have key elements that make the film awful and i think if you change some of those aspects and get rid of the problems with the original one you make a a more cohesive story so i'll kind of get into my pitch but i'll go over my cast i wrote out kind of how it starts and then i wrote more of what i'm going to change about it but it's going to tell more or less very similar stories to the original even though you guys know i hate it it's not because of the story that it tells it's because of simple little things that they can change the characters the way they do things so I think those are the most important things. This movie just came out. People saw it. Like, It's a tough one to reboot, even though I think it can be fixed. So I went just the direction of fixing what was wrong with the original. So my director is Steve McQueen, who, not the actor, but uh, he did 12 Years a Slave, but he also did Hunger and Shame with Michael Fassbender, which are both great. Um, my Mildred is going to be played by Octavia Spencer. Um, my chief, Bill Willoughby, uh, which was originally Will, uh, or Woody Harrelson. I'm resurrecting an actor's career, and that is Christian Slater, and he is going to be my Bill Willoughby. My officer, Jason Dixon, who was originally Sam Rockwell, is going to be played by Paul Dano. Uh, my Robbie, who was originally Lucas Hedges, is going to be played by Shamik Moore. That's uh, Mildred's son. And then Angela, the daughter, um, she's only going to be in it for a couple flashbacks, but that's going to be played by Logan Browning, who was in Dear White People and The Perfection. And then my Red Welby, who is, uh, he's the one who rented out the billboards, who gets beat up by Dixon. That's going to be played by Stephen Yoon. So here's um, my pitch. In the small town of Ebbing, Missouri, a grieving woman puts up three billboards. Mildred lost her daughter the year before and feels continuously ignored by the police. The billboards get the attention of the sheriff and his racist, violent deputy, Officer Dixon. Mildred and Chief Willoughby used to be close before the terrible event from a year ago. Some aspects of the film will remain the same. Same words on the billboards. Chief Willoughby has cancer. The relationship with Mildred and her son is similar. It feels tainted because of the billboards. He's upset with her. Um, and Mildred's obsession with finding her murdered, uh, who f- murdered her daughter also causes like their um, angst in the relationship. The differences are, first of all, there's no pointless Peter Dinklage character. That literally he was only in the original one to make little people jokes that shit is we're past that there's no bullshit redemption nonsense with the evil racist cop fuck that the him i know people have argued to me oh it's showing that even bad people can do good things no the only reason that even slightly people think that works is because sam rockwell is likable not the character so that's why i gave it to paul dano who in there will be blood plays the most hateable person in the world um, so it is revealed that Dixon is tampering with evidence because of his hatred of Mildred because of the billboards and not caring about some young black girl dying 
Um, he doesn't care about that. He doesn't want them to solve that. So he tampers with the case. That's why it is drawn out. Um, because in the original one, if a white girl was murdered in a town full of racist cops, either A, they would have found who did it because it's the most important case they've ever had in their lives. This is small town, Missouri, made up city, but there's a murder. They would have found who did it by now. Or they would have framed some young black man. Dixon would have done that. So everything about the original premise is not believable at all. So getting rid of things, changing things that make it more believable. Um, the police station does get burnt down in mine. But instead of just the main character burning it down with zero consequences, um, it's going to be a group of protesters that discovered the case because of the billboards. Not by Mildred, because we want to root for her. Um, and because uh, shit makes no sense in the original. That's what I wrote. And Willoughby does kill himself, but it's after the police station is burnt down. I think he does it beforehand in the original one. Um, and the film ends with Dixon sitting in a pub and overhearing a man talking openly about how he raped a girl and how he ended up dying, or and how she ended up dying, saying she must not have been too much for her, or how he must have been too much for her, and, he, and he's laughing about it with his friends. Dixon turns his head to look at the men discussing this. Dixon stands up and walks towards the table, but he does not stop. He walks out of the bar smirking, and the film ends. So that's my version of it. It is darker um, in terms of the ending and stuff, but I feel like the original had so many fucking stupid little problems that could have been fixed easily. I'm telling a similar story, but I'm fixing those problems. It makes no sense that this racist little police station um, doesn't care about this white woman dying, so we're changing it. It's a black girl who dies. That explains why this case is being ignored. Um, and... I'm making the lead actually likable, someone you're somewhat rooting for, even though she is grieving and does some bad things, and you might not agree with everything she does. It's not someone you're just like, Frances McDormand's a fucking pile of shit in this movie. Why am I rooting for her? Um, and I don't have a redemption of one of the most evil racist characters on screen um, just because people like Sam Rockwell. So that is my three billboards outside Ebbing, Missouri. All right. Bobby. Okay. So I thought because this, this is a recent, well, you know, for the most part, well-regarded, critically acclaimed movie, um, it's hard to do this in a serious way again. So what I'm going to do um, is I'm making this a mockumentary, um, and I'll get into why for that and how that works out. But my director is going to be Armando Iannucci, who did The Death of Stalin. Um, and basically, this is going to be a black comedy. Uh, it's a dark humor um, where... And I'll get into the pitch, but basically, okay, my my head of the crew in the in the mockumentary type guys, who's the only one of them that's going to be seen on screen as like interviewing, is going to be Nick Offerman, um, and then my Mildred is going to be played by Jane Lynch, uh, my Sam Rockwell character Jason Dixon is going to be played by Adam Scott, uh, and my Bill Willoughby, the Woody Harrelson character, is going to be played by Vince Vaughn. And the movie follows a documentary crew, and this is going to be a mockumentary in the sense of kind of the Tiger King thing, where they went to film one thing, and they ended up making a documentary about something completely different. Um, they went to find, oh, these amazing tigers and all this amazing thing, and ended up finding these terrible human beings. Um, and that's what I'm going to be parodying, where they go and try to parody, they try to make a documentary about this amazing, like this woman who's trying to get the cops to find her to investigate but what they really find is everyone in this town is such a terrible person uh and as she burns down the police department including mildred herself so like i said the movie follows documentary crew going down to Ebbing, missouri to shoot a story on the woman who has rented three billboards that story 
when they get there, they start to realize everyone in this town is terrible, and they start to reframe their story to show how terrible people can be, um, even in, in this time. It follows the events of the movie from the camera crew's perspective with interviews uh, by each character throughout. Uh, it's a black comedy with people with the people not realizing how terrible they are during the interviews, and they think they're such a good person going throughout this whole thing, uh, making themselves sound uh, even worse as they go on. For example, at the end of the movie, like Adam Scott is interviewed after thinking he found out who the killer is after that conversation in the bar, and Nick, Nick Offerman can't keep his keep his mouth shut, so he dryly says, "And you think this makes up for the, all the other terrible things you did?" And he's Adam Scott says, "What?" And Nick Offerman goes, "Never mind." So you think you found out who it is, and they so it's making the joke and they make the joke even at the end of the movie is we better get an Oscar for this thing like they're it's it's mocking they, it's the Tiger King thing of uh, they go down to shoot one thing it's turns out to be completely something different where it's just about these people um, and kind of just revealing to the world how kind of kind of awful they are um, and so yeah it's it's because it's hard to do this movie again in a serious tone so quickly after it just came out so I wanted to more in a dark dark comedy way show you know kind of the horrors of the actual story and the people and not really a re show the redemption side that they try to do in the movie I didn't think it was possible to be more mad about this movie and then Poppy made a version that would piss me off more alright Tristan you got questions? yeah I've got no questions I'm just ready to hear them fight about these two very very different takes on this movie <laughs> yeah same uh, yeah, so you guys can uh, fight it out. Uh, it's fifty-seven fifty right now, so um, five minutes. Left. I mean, I'll start. A girl was raped and murdered, and Bobby is making a mockumentary about that. Thinks it's funny to highlight the racist, awful people. Um, Tiger King is awful and should never have been made. And instead of people learning what that was about, most people, the general public, which Bobby loves to talk about took that as look at these fun people like bobby's movie would be made and people would be like oh adam scott is so funny in that and they wouldn't get it like i get what you're going for like i get it's not you just being like oh let's point out how funny racism is but that is what the general public will take from your movie because everyone after seeing tiger king was just like oh my god i love these people let's dress as them for halloween and they're these great characters and oh my god they're fun to watch no one took that as they're abusing animals. They should all be dead. I hope the tigers eat them all um, because that, in, if you know, there was a God, they should all be dead by now. But your movie is problematic, more so probably than the original because even if it's not what you're intending to do, that is what people will think of it. And you don't fix anything from the original. You're just like, here's a mockumentary with funny racists. I don't, I don't no. really – So I don't know. No. It's, so what I'm getting at, good. it's going to be – the actual pointing out how terrible they are is going to be pretty that part is going to be pretty on the nose because that's what they reframe it and you get the actual discussion from the crew about how like so it's not and like that's why i said he even points out like so that makes it up for the other terrible things so you you frame it in the sense like because that story of what, how tiger king was made has been like everyone knows why it was made now um and like yeah some people do like those characters like those people is like oh they're entertaining but when you do it in a way that instead of, because Tiger King didn't comment on it, they just showed it, and that's why people interpret it that way. Mine's gonna comment on it while it's happening to show, like, okay, they they might think they're like the best person because of this crazy story they're telling about what they did, and oh, she burnt down a police station, or he's this racist guy with all these different stories, and he thinks that's all a 
you know, just normal and a good thing, but they're, it's going to actually comment and be like, this is terrible. We have to show people like, you know, what it's like. And it's going to have dry, like humor. That's horrifying. Cause that's what black comedy kind of does where you're showing things that are, you know, terrible in a, in a way that is, you can't help but laugh, but in a way that makes you uncomfortable. And that's what I'm going for. That's what like the death of Stalin kind of style is what I'm is did. Um, and I think, cause yours again, you're, we're going more on mine, but, telling like i know what you're doing and you're like with it and you're trying to change like the and make it make a little bit more sense with the like actual racism and have it be a black kid who was killed and all that but there there's no real reason to reboot in a serious way a movie that just came out and won a lot of oscars um and if this was 20 years from now i'd say maybe you that could was do that what we had to do that was right, our but job no but our job was to reboot the movie but you can do it yeah, in a different tone that better. would actually do something different with it where yours if they said oh this is a drama we just saw a drama like this i don't know i i don't see the reason to do it other than just like because all you the didn't smart like people, the original because you all the like smart the people who didn't like the original would see mine and be like oh shit they fixed that they did that better like that's how it should have been the first time around yours i don't see the point of because that people would just be like wasn't this some really serious drama why is adam scott and nick offerman in this and my other thing is, your director of Death of Stalin, his comedy, I almost had him do my Around the World in 80 Days before it was completely Monty Python because I thought his style in that kind of matched Monty Python for Death of Stalin. It wasn't quite as, like, you know, goofy, but a lot of the humor is similar. But I don't see his humor in that matching up with yours. It's very British comedy, and there's a reason they got different writers and directors who did the British office to do the American office. It's a totally different style of comedy. It's a totally different um, audience for it. If you just made a straight up like Death of Stalin, there's a reason Death of Stalin, no one in America has fucking seen Death of Stalin, but a lot of British people have. And, you know, Tristan and I have seen it and I think it's great because I understand that comedy and I like it, but I don't see him meshing with Adam Scott and Nick Offerman the way you're saying he does. I don't see him meshing with you know, a Missouri city um, well, and these so, characters. It does not actually match what you're saying, Death of Stalin. Did. Sometimes, sometimes it bring it takes someone coming in from an outside perspective to comment on how things are in the United States. Um, like, so your uh, movie should all be British people. No, well, no, but the director making fun what of I'm getting at, What I'm getting at is Heller High Water. The director is not from the United States, and his entire commentary on it the reason he made the movie is because it's how he saw the united states and the problems with it and he was able to portray that in a way that people too close to the situation may not be able to do and that's what i think bringing someone over and using american comedians because uh that people will know and be able to relate to instead of bringing a bunch of british actors over who people don't know and it's just going to be british humor you get their sensibility and their humor style with someone who's worked with dark material before and made it funny and commented on it i think that actually fits better than how you're saying um and i and like like i said it just are we losing oh sorry i thought i was losing connection there but uh look again i don't know if yours really makes sense to reboot in a serious way because they just did it in a serious way and it won a lot of awards it's yours yeah, but to fix it for who? It's a very my. It's a very small amount of people, people that saw that movie that like that don't like that movie. Don't care. Very highly rated and like, 
And um, okay, here because Simpletons like that movie. Okay, sorry, judges, but my my thing is this: there's so many problems if you just watch that movie and you understand what it's doing. Like, it's very very problematic. And yes, it got high reviews and it won the Oscars. You know why? Because the Oscars love problematic stuff. They don't give a shit. They don't know any better. Like they just Crash won Best Picture. Green Book won Best Picture. Three Billboards is very similar to that. It's basically like, right. Oh, and this, this points out the problems. This points out the problems with that. Mine fixes the problems. Yours just kind of lazily points them out, and I'm not into yours. I don't need a mockumentary based around a rape murder case. A rape right. murder but case. The whole thing, but the the. The, I know that, that again, comedy is in that, that is what they draw. It's the draw for them comedy. to go there. And the premise no. is these characters. So you're, you know, that's that's what you're mostly focusing on. It's it's kind of like how how Tiger King did. Tiger King did the. They'll Stop show you this. I know. Like I have I have one. Force. I have I have I have one more thing about that that'll show how it's parodying it in a way because one of the things that actually is kind of brilliant and how they did tiger king is they will introduce a character and show them as oh maybe this is the good person and then later on just show how terrible they are like carol baskin at first like oh she's the good side of what whatever the fuck his name is um the main tiger king guy is and then they reveal she might have killed her husband so you're showing mildred it's like oh she's the good person in this and then she burnt down the police station so she's you know not she's not great either so it's like you're you're having all everyone in this terrible situation just happens to also be a bad person as well. Here's, here's my thing. I watch films differently than a lot of people, and I understand that. I think the people who enjoy Three Billboards can watch it and just accept, I'm watching a movie full of bad people. I honestly don't think people watch it and think, yeah, these are all good people that I'm rooting for. You know, they don't, they don't fully try to redeem um, Dixon's character, but their point is, this bad person can kind of do a good thing, but I think the audience, for the most part, does understand that all these people are bad. So I don't need a mockumentary pointing things out that the film actually did do. My problem is not that the film you know, didn't portray these people as unlikable or bad. Mine is, it's a completely unrealistic story based on the characters that they presented to me. I understand they're all bad. I understand that Dixon is a very racist person, and it makes no sense that a young white woman murdered and raped in this small little town that doesn't have much crime is not the number one case that all of the police are focusing on 100% of the time. That is such a blatant plot hole that is ruins the entire movie for me. I think some simple changes, you can make three billboards very similar to how it was, but in a better way that doesn't have so many plot holes. Your movie is just kind of doing what the original did of, look at these bad people. And, uh, you know, the other, the other, the original one didn't hide that. If the original, I, I'm not saying the original pointed to these people and said, look at these great people, you know, racists aren't that bad. Your Yours is just like way too on the nose when you've already done that. So yours right. is pointless. We have, our, we have our ruling. We, we yeah. and Tristan figured mm-hmm. it out. Uh, Tristan, do you want to give your thoughts first, or should I? Yeah, I'll give some thoughts first and say that I was very close on this one. You guys definitely both uh, argued some good points. I think, Johnny, you did exactly what you aimed to do. You just took the original story and like improved all the flaws of it and made it better. 
but I think there's better ways to fix problems like the redemption arc than just totally removing it. Like I think if you wanted to really flex on three billboards, you could say, okay, I'm going to do the redemption arc you tried to do, but I'm going to actually do it better and earn it rather than just, there's no okay, I'm going to remove it now. You can't. You can't. That's and I think portraying the world in such a black and white characters are good or bad perspective kind of like misses the point of the original movie where people have like this middle ground where someone terrible can do something good that doesn't make them a good person and we're supposed to question whether or not we're rooting for their actions. I think Johnny's kind of takes a complex story and makes it very black and white and straightforward. And while I think it does sound like it fixes a lot of plot holes in the original, I am leaning a bit towards Bobby because I think it's an interesting take on this uh, premise. I think, like you said, we've just seen it done dramatically. And I think doing a comedic take that takes this and pushes it to kind of an extreme is really interesting. I like his director's choice. I do agree with the criticism Johnny had that it feels too American in the cast for this director. I think he would have been better with people like Peter Capaldi coming in who had that British dry humor that could really make the most out of this. And like we said before, uh, Death of Stalin is it's about Russia, but it's all British people. So you don't really need to have like the people who are in the setting play the characters. I think part of the absurdity is that it's this outsider perspective coming in. But I do think Bobby's director would make a good good movie out of it, and I think he's a director who could balance the tones really well. So I'm giving it to Bobby in the end. Yeah, my thing is that when I picked this movie, I really didn't care if this movie came out in 2018 or, like, you know, 1920. Like, as far as, like, oh, this movie was recent, it doesn't really matter, like, how you reboot it. That was kind of my thought process when I picked it. I, I felt both pitches were, like, fairly like weak like none of them really stood out as like oh this was like a great phenomenal mm -hmm. pitch that i can't wait to watch i couldn't wait to watch this uh my problems with uh bobby is i feel like there are like still a little bit of like problematic elements in it i don't know if they were like, i don't know if those were fully corrected and my thing with johnny's is his felt more like a response to the original movie and not really like a movie itself especially with like the scene at the end of like Dixon being at the bar and then hearing the guy like talk about raping her and then him just like walking out and smirking felt more like a reaction to the original and less like Yeah, I think a... if you haven't seen the original, Johnny's movie does nothing for you, but if you've seen it and you have problems, Johnny's is the perfect course correction, but I just don't think it stands as well on its own. Yeah, and that was like a lot of my big problems with his is his felt just more like a reaction and trying to like, oh, this was you know the problem with this movie so i'm gonna do it this way and it just didn't feel like a standalone movie where to me bobby's felt more like a standalone movie so bobby's didn't really win me over but neither did johnny's but i just felt like bobby's felt more like a real actual movie so i went bobby i knew i knew talking about how shitty the original would not win me over because you fuckers like that shit and also, like, yeah. talking about how bad, like, I, like, Tiger King, to me, I was watching it being, like, all of these people were shitty, so doing, like, a mockumentary Tiger King thing, to me, like, just fit and made sense. I was never, like, oh, these are, like, you know, cool people. I felt like, oh, look at all these shitty assholes. And it makes fun of Tiger King, too, I feel like. It, t it shows the fact that these are shitty people that were given, like, a pedestal, too. So I feel like there was a bit of a commentary in there. No. All right, where are we going? <laughs> I still got some some ground to make up. Right, yeah. Yeah, was it three two? Yeah, yeah, it's three two. Bobby's still down by one, but Bobby, he goes on a winning streak. Bobby so needs to win Tristan over because these are all Tristan. The last two are Tristan's picks. So. Yeah, you guys better be nice yeah. to me. All right. Yeah, you know me. 
<laughs> All right, so I'm just going to maybe tie this one up, but I'm going to pick Brokeback Mountain, and I'm going to go second. All right, Brokeback Mountain right. It starts with a B, so it's going to be a B. So Brokeback Mountain came out in 2005. I got 80, 87% on Rotten Tomatoes. In 1963, Rodeo Cowboy Jack Twist and Ranch Hand Enos Del Mar are hired by rancher Joe Aguirre as sheep herders in Wyoming. One night on Brokeback Mountain, Jack makes a drunken pass at Enos that is eventually reciprocated. Though Enos marries his longtime sweetheart Alma, and Jack marries a fellow rodeo rider, the two men keep up their tortured and sporadic affair over the course of 20 years. Alright. Um, so you made me go first. Alright, so uh, my director, I chose um, Chinonye Chu, uh, Chuklu, who I don't know fully how to pronounce her name, but she directed Clemency with Elfie uh, Woodard. Um, which is known for giving a really like really strong central performance. Like she's really good at working with with actors and and got her a lot of uh, you know uh, claim for that one. Uh, my rule is that I'm going to resurrect an actor's career, and I'm going to go with someone who, for a while, they're trying to push as here's your lead guy and supposed to be in a lot of movies, and then it didn't really work, and he's kind of been a side character, if not much since. And that's Emil Hirsch, um, and he is going to be my Ennis character um my jack twist is going to be played by daniel kaluuya my lorene um jack's eventual wife is going to be played by janelle monet uh and then alma who is um ennis's wife eventually is going to be played by colby smolders so the original is set in 1963 i want to set it a little bit later because it plays into my plot uh in 1969 the year after the assassination of martin luther king um, after segregation had ended and black people were getting some more opportunities, although outward racism was also still rampant. Um, so Ennis is hired by Joe Aguirre uh, to herd sheep through the summer on the, on the Brokeback Mountains and meets Jack, who is already working there for a small wage. They clearly have a connection, but don't act upon it until a night of drinking where Ennis makes a pass at Jack. Jack resists at first, but eventually they have a passionate night together as well as the summer. Uh, Jack says it has to be a one-time thing, as both being black and gay is a death sentence. Emil pleads and says he'll protect him from, from people like him, um, but after the summer, they leave and go their separate ways. Ennis returns the next summer for work, but Joe refuses uh, to hire him again as he witnessed he and Jack last year. Jack had been fired, and Joe says he's lucky to be alive. Ennis marries his longtime fiancé, Alma, and Jack meets a waitress named Lorene, who marries, who they, who marries and they have a son. Um, and after four years apart, just as the gay movement in the 70s was starting to uh, kick in, leading to more and more people coming out of the closet, en Ennis comes to meet Jack. Um, they kiss, which is inadvertently seen by Lorene um, and Emil, and Ennis throughout is trying to plead with, uh, with Jack to kind of come out and make it more of a public thing, and he won't do it. Um, the movie then shows their marriages uh, and... Uh, their, their marriages, then meeting uh, on fishing trips and other things, getting together. And Lorene finally confronts Jack for his true relationship with Ennis. They fight, but Lorene says, I just want you to be happy, Jack, but, this, but if this is what makes you happy, I can't be the lie in your life. They separate, and we now have Jack depressed and dating around. Um, on their next meeting, Ennis tells Jack uh, he's moving across the country for work and would no longer be able to meet. Leads to an argument with, um, and where Ennis is not understanding why a single man like him now is not coming out of the closet as more people were. Um, eventually, Jack and Lorene reconcile for their son and at least stay together for him. Uh, and then sometime later, Ennis gets a letter in the mail from Lorene saying Jack has been shot and probably won't make it. He flies back to visit, and he goes to the house to see Lorene 
uh, and sees Jack has kept Ennis's bloody shirt from an argument they had the previous summer. He holds it to his face and weeps along with Lorene. Uh, Lorene says that Jack was shot by a, by an acquaintance who was also black after he after he was caught with another man. We then cut to the hospital a few weeks later, and Jack is some, Jack opens his eyes and actually did survive. Ennis can't believe it and is overjoyed. Uh, Jack had lost all movement in his legs but survived. And we cut to a year later, and Ennis and Jack are leading members of the gay movement um, with a heavy focus on the stigma in the black culture. So what we wanted to get at is you kind of think the whole movie is, oh, he's scared of white people killing him because he's black and gay, but um, it's a very big stigma still within the black community to come out. Uh, it's it's even more so than a lot of other cultures because they're supposed to keep their feelings a lot more bottled up. Um, and if you hear anyone in that community talk about it, it makes it even tougher. So I at least want to comment on that and why it's even more difficult um, just within their own you know, within their own race, even. So it's kind of what I want to comment on somewhat. Yeah, imagine if Moonlight didn't come out. All right. There's so, also an interracial relationship back in the 60s. Oh, it's only like Loving didn't come out. Um, okay. <laughs> this Bobby's might be the worst pitch to ever win, but here's mine. The Romance of a Lifetime. This is Disney two, life, two lifelong <laughs> friends go on a fishing trip on Brokeback Mountain. They know it's wrong because they are both married, but it feels so right. The two best friends start a romantic relationship, making love in the tent under the moonlight. They know this is a secret they must keep forever because in their world, this is unacceptable. They are famous for their acting work and starring in major motion pictures and TV shows. They cannot let this secret come out of the, because of their stardom and for their families' lives. How will the two most famous celebrities in the world, Mickey Mouse and Goofy, hide their feelings for each other that's my pitch all right that's all that's all right. <laughs> so, my pitch may not be the strongest but at least Yours it's a movie so bad uh, johnny's is not a movie it reminds me of last week when the longest yard came out and i was like oh i'm gonna yeah, throw this as exactly, a joke that is almost 100 percent what this is and then joe's pitch came through that. and it was actually good and i was like well shit i've got to throw it anyway now so <laughs> Yeah, I mean, go for it, Johnny. What do you got to say for yourself? My defense is this. Bobby's movie is done. Bobby is literally just, what if we made Brokeback Mountain with one black guy? Because everything else in the movie is the same, except at the end he lives, which takes away all the drama from the original one, and it just steals everything that Moonlight did. So Bobby's movie is a complete ripoff. I wrote mine as a joke, and then I'm like, Bobby's movie sounds so fucking terrible that I actually have to defend mine. Because I think, yeah, I kind of wrote mine as a joke, but how many kids' movies have ever been made that actually show, like, a gay romance? I, I think mine could be a kids' movie, but them loving each other. I was going to make is, a joke. You didn't even write a whole movie. I was gonna, yeah, it's a pitch, Bobby. That's what it is. We're not writing movies. <laughs> I know, but you um, didn't get an idea. So my thing is, you're going to show the relationship of Mickey and Goofy, and it's going to be them as real people, and, like, their characters are Mickey and Goofy, and they're in these movies, but secretly they're in love with each other. And Mickey is married to Minnie, and Goofy's married to Roxanne, and you still have those stories, but they're secretly in love with each other. And it's it can be made for kids, and I think you can actually do mine and teach kids about something that no other movie has the balls to do. No, no kids movie has anything to do with with uh, gay characters or anything like that. There's not one you can name that is close to it. So I think just making a movie like that with super famous characters would be a statement that yes disney would never actually do because they don't give a shit about gay people but i think it's a movie that if it was made it could be important 
and your movie is just a ripoff of a bunch of other movies and it's not important at all and it will be just a failed reboot so there's my defense my movie could be important your movie sounds like a ripoff of a bunch of other things which is still an important story to tell and you know not really especially that but do we need a fight or do i or what's going on with that Look, I feel like you've run pretty long. I'd like to hear Joey's thoughts on it. I do yeah, think my... that uh, yeah, there's, there's some problems in Bobby's pitch that I would have liked to see Johnny take on him with the real pitch, but I don't know how to give a win to Johnny on a pitch that's barely even complete. I think Bobby's has some problems, but I'll get into it more after I hear Joe's thoughts. Yeah, my thing is if Johnny pitched it, if it was like make one a like a movie or something, and he pitched his as like he broke back mountain but i'm gonna like tone it no, down and make it the rule no i'm just yeah. saying but like i know that's not the rule but if like it was that and he was like trying to say like oh i'm trying to pitch this for kids or whatever i'd be like sure why not but i think the problem with having such iconic characters that disney would never do that with that i just feel like it would be it's like impossible to give him the point on this one and so i feel like it has to okay go okay Bobby. here's here's the twist all right it's directed by Lars Van Trier, and there's full <laughs> yeah, no. penetration. Oh, now it's on. You <laughs> see it all. I mean, now it's for adults, and you didn't see that coming. Literally. My curiosity would definitely get the best of Unlike the Unlike my movie, you didn't see it Lars Van Trier movie. <laughs> I got it. Right. beats Disney. I mean, look, that sounds yeah. awesome to me, but. I don't know if that's yeah. for everybody. You know, you gotta talk about general public as Bobby keeps bringing up. I give a fuck. Uh, look, there's ways Johnny could have done this pitch. There's a lot of characters in the Mickey Mouse universe. He could have not gone for someone as prominent and well known as Mickey Mouse. He could have done this a real movie. I think Mickey and Minnie are too iconic of a couple for you to break up, even if it's like, done in the Chip progressive and Dale. way. It's important. Yeah, there's all kinds of characters you could have had. totally gay. Mickey's pretty gay, probably. Yeah. But uh-huh. you have Mickey and Minnie together. They're the iconic Disney couple, you know? I'm not getting Disneyland, okay? When you see that's that guy walking TikTok. around, that's a gay That's a gay punk Looking for some cheese, I'll tell you. But look. And, 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 Go- and Goofy's a dog. Dogs hump everything. All right? Mine's real and stupid as fuck. Bobby's is a rip off of Moonlight Loving and Brokeback Mountain. God damn it. I'm going to lose to this. Yeah, Bobby, like, you could have done so much better with that pitch. I think I, you That was the last one I wrote, and I had no idea what to do with it. So I'm glad I it think, won. I think putting it in a historical context kind of removes some of the, like, I think I'm tired of seeing, like, oh, it was bad for gay people and black people back in the day movies. I want it to be, like, these problems are here today yeah. now, and I think you can do a movie about, like, gay black cowboys in modern-day settings and not have it be... Mickey's a gay black cowboy. Like, he's mostly black. Like, you could have switched it from, like, gay to, like, these two, like, this man and woman ranch hand, and then they find out, like, that the woman is trans and something, and they have a love affair, and then, you know, you could update it. And then do it that way and make it interesting to update it and make it modern day. But, I don't know. I I vote for Bobby. We we okay. we wanted to speed this up, and then we talked about why Bobby should win for ten minutes. So <laughs> yeah, yeah, we, let's go All quick, right. and then we so just talk as oh, long as we always have. Our last have. our last one is ordinary people. Okay. Yeah, a movie I don't really know anything about, but I also knew I wasn't picking, so I didn't really look it up. So. <laughs> ordinary people. I had a class in in oh, freshman year community college where I had to do a rewrite of ordinary people as a practice round for my first script. So I 
I've done a lot of research into this movie that kind of vanished from my mind until this episode, so I'm curious what you guys do with it, too. Uh, ordinary People, I have not read this since I copied this from Rotten Tomatoes' website. Got it from 1980, got a 89% on Rotten Tomatoes. Tormented by guilt following the death of his older brother, Buck, in a sailing accident, alienated teenager Conrad Jarrett attempts suicide. Returning home following an extended stay in a psychiatric hospital, Conrad tries to deal with his mental anguish and also reconnect with his mother, Beth, who has grown cold and angry and emotional, and his emotionally wounded father, Calvin, with the help of his psychiatrist, Dr. Berger. And I just realized that we used the same rule and might have used the same character. <laughs> Maybe. Right. Maybe not the same character, but we used Oh, yeah, I forgot about rule. this rule. All right, who's going first? Um, Bobby, go first. All right. Okay. So uh, my director is going to be Lynn Ramsey, who did We Need to Talk About Kevin and You Are Never Really Here. Um, my rule is I'm going to use a character from a Spielberg film, and I'm going to use uh, Private Ryan, uh, James Ryan from Saving Private Ryan. Uh, his wife is, is going to be played by Jennifer Connelly, and that's going to be Stephanie Ryan, and then his son... Uh, Miller Ryan is going to be played by Jacob Tremblay. And that's really my main cast because it's going to focus on the family uh, as well as the like psychologist who I didn't, didn't really put down, but you could throw anyone character actor in there. So in the 1960s, James Ryan is now married with a son. He suffers from a level of PTSD from the war as well as feeling of, of not being worthy of being alive because of his rescue, but hides it as much as he can. On a vacation with his friend's family, Miller's best friend is killed in a water skiing accident uh, where Miller blames himself because as he was watching from the back of the boat and didn't see another boat that was too close. Um, this causes Miller to go into a tailspin of depression and suffers similar PTSD traits to his dad from the incident. The movie focuses on, a, on the relationship between James and his son, as well as each of them dealing with their mental states. Um, at first, James tries to tell Miller just to move on. It was not his fault, and he should not show anyone that he was weak, um, just like kind of he does. Miller is sent to a psychologist to help him, and we see that the se when we, and we see these sessions throughout the movie, talking about his dad, the incident, and and the, his involvement. Uh, these are paralleled by James talking with his wife, who is trying to get him to stop uh, being so, so cold towards their son, and connect with him. When James and Miller finally have an emotional conversation, there's a breakdown scene at the end where, with James really understanding what's driving his son's depression, uh, finally making him understand that there was no way he could have possibly prevented the accident. The other boat was moving too fast. If he was watching and said something, the only difference would be that he would have seen it happen. Uh, and Miller kind of realizes that he's as much of a hero as the other soldiers that rescued him uh, and that he had no control over their deaths as well. That's going to be talked about with the wife throughout and then kind of come out in this scene as well. So you have the big emotional kind of release at the end of the movie. Uh, they embrace and James is able to stop suppressing his emotions and fully connect with his son. Johnny? So it's a family drama just like the first one, but relating to PTSD. So, the first one um, is kind of all about survivors who have PTSD, um, yeah, and I think the most important I think the most important character um, in the movie is Doctor Berger, um, and Bobby did not cast him in his. So, I did use the same rule. It probably will be spoiled if I give my actress. So I'll just read my pitch. My director is Lawrence Michael Levine, who did Black Bear and Wild Canaries. He can really, really capture emotional performances um, better than a lot of modern-day uh, directors can. Is Tristan still there? Because um, he's judging, and he... I don't know. Tristan, you there? He said BRB. 
Okay. But I don't know if that means he can hear or not. Yeah, he can hear. Okay, he can hear. So we're good. Okay, so my film is entirely set in the office of Dr. Berger. Berger is a therapist who has recently been meeting with a young woman struggling with PTSD and uh, survivor's guilt from her brother's suicide. The young woman uh, enters his office and sits down across from him. She is shy and does not have much to say, so her doctor carries the conversation for a bit. They get into her parents' divorce and discuss how that made her feel when she was young and how it was growing up with uh, their shared custody. After the discussion goes smoothly um, and she starts to open up more, um, the conversation changes uh, to her brother. She says when she was really young, she thought she lost him before, but they have always been together through all of the events in their lives. She feels broken without him. Um, she feels broken without him because he was the only steady person in her life. Um, her parents were always in and out. She had shared custody. She never really saw them. Um, and her brother was always there for her. The conversation deals with survivor's guilt and blaming yourself for the loss of a loved one and the acceptance that nothing you can do might be able to help those people from you know, just being depressed and uh, taking their own lives. Dr. Berger pauses for a bit, takes a deep breath, and says, Rachel, we need to finally talk about the events. Rachel, who is played by Dakota Fanning, drops a locket on the ground she has been toying with throughout the meeting. The locket opens and shows two pictures. One photo is of her brother, Robbie, played by Justin Chetwin, and the other is of her father, Ray Ferrier, who played by Tom Cruise. Ray Ferrier was a, or Rachel Ferrier was a, or has a shocked look on her face. She still has nightmares about the alien invasion from 15 years ago. Dr. Berger discusses PTSD, and the reason he became a therapist was because he wanted to help people that dealt with the horrific invasion. Many people lost their loved ones during the War of the Worlds, and many fear the re- uh, of their return. The final act is Rachel opening up about how afraid she is for this happening again, and that she believes this is why her brother killed himself, because of his fear of the uh, invasion happening again. So, my movie is 15 years after the events of uh, War of the Worlds, and it's something that I wish, I honestly wish this could be made, because every Alien Invasion sequel is just the aliens coming again, and I've never seen a movie that is a character from this big, you know, movie event dealing with their life afterwards. So, I, um, and Dakota Fanning turned out to be such an incredible actress, and Billy Crudup is the most watchable person, I think, one of the most watchable people in Hollywood today, that I think movie set in the office, the whole movie is just conversation. It's um, way different, obviously, than the original, but it's not billed as such. And uh, deals with a lot of things that, especially after COVID, dealing with loss of loved ones and things like that, that I think uh, the world could, could use. And I think mine could actually be one shot during this time because it is in quarantine. So there's only a couple people and it's a smaller scale film. Um, and it's just something we've never seen and something I was interested in doing. It is different than the original, but it deals with a lot of the same subjects. Um, and I think it does it very well. I think the relationship in the original uh, between the son and Dr. Berger is very, uh, um, is the most important thing in it. I do think obviously not having the mother son relationship where she, blames him and doesn't you know and she's cold to him i kind of want to take that aspect out but it will be addressed in terms of the divorce and things so you're going to get those same themes but it's going to be um, a much different setup for a movie because 
Ordinary People is a really fucking great movie. I, I think it's one of the most emotionally powerful films ever done. Robert Redford was the director of it. Um, Timothy Hutton's great in it. And um, Judd Hirsch as uh, Dr. Berger is my favorite character in the film. And I think taking that aspect out is uh, is a problem. So that's my, my pitch for the movie. All right, yeah, I don't know. I mean, Tristan's in charge of this round. I didn't have any questions, but like through half of Johnny's pitch, I was trying to figure out who the main focus was. And I was like, is he, and I, for a while, I thought your main focus was going to be the little girl and Hook. And I'm like, what the fuck crap-tastic <laughs> movie is he pitching? <laughs> I mean, Hook existed. Yeah. Yeah, like he was just like, oh, this little girl and her brother is the only one she could depend on. And I'm like, is he, is it the is main he, character yeah. in his movie going to be the, and like the divorce and everything? And I'm like, it's the oh, little girl. Oh, that would have been a weird twist. What if I was just like, yeah, it's the girl from Hook. <laughs> but yeah, all right, that's all I had, Tristan. I've got one question for Bobby. Johnny really made sure to set his apart from the original, and I wanted to hear a little bit about how yours is different from what we've already seen. Um, so what I really wanted to do is have the family relationship really focus on someone who's been back from war and how they deal with their, their son and family, um, especially when they suffer from something similar like this. Like the first one, the son is the one that's really going, and then obviously the mom has like, she's cold towards him and all that, but um, it's really the, the, the one going to the psychologist and all that, that's suffering, only one suffering from like the depression and the survivor's guilt and all that. I want it to be able to be like, how does someone that is dealing with that himself from war deal with a, a son that is going through a similar mental state, even when he, when he can't really handle it himself. So I really want it to be a family drama, like the first one, but related to soldiers coming back from war. Um, and how they can relate in a family rather than um, just just the family dynamic, dynamic from the first one. All right, I like that answer. I don't have any questions for Johnny. I mostly want to hear them argue about it. Uh, coming on to the last battle is always exciting, so it should be a fun one. Um, yeah, my main issue is I, I feel like Bobby more or less kind of did the original over again, but with less interesting dynamics and something that we've seen before. I, I think Ordinary People was very unique for its time because it dealt with a lot of emotional themes that we really hadn't seen in movies um, at the time. It's kind of like Kramer versus Kramer. Had, there's never really been a movie about divorce, and then you got this fantastic movie that won Best Picture because it dealt with something you've never seen before. That's why I wanted to do something that we have never seen before. The sequel to Independence Day is just another alien invasion. The sequel to Alien is just more aliens. I want to take someone who has been through like this horrible sci-fi event and really break down the character and learn how that affects them emotionally and have a lot of ties to the original as far as, far as the themes and narratives, but change the film enough. Um, and again, I think it applies because it's just, if you look at these, you, it's this invasion, it's how do ordinary people, how are they affected by these horrific things that are once in a lifetime events? I think mine does that and it's a unique take on it. And while Bobby's, he says his, oh, it deals with PTSD. We've seen a million movies that deal with PTSD from soldiers. Like, I think PTSD is something that is not dealt with outside of war very much in film. We've seen The Deer Hunter. We've seen Thank You for Your Service with Miles Teller. We've seen American Sniper. We've seen um, the long halftime walk movie. There's a million examples of Bobby's movie in terms of dealing with PTSD after war. And, that, and yes, that's an important subject, but there are a million documentaries. There are a million things dealing with that and and i think dealing with real 
real life events like that. I think a documentary is better suited for it. I don't think um, dealing with that in film is as interesting. And I think taking a film that deals with someone's emotional events from a film that's not a realistic thing, but you bring in realistic narratives, I think um, fits my movie well. And it's something we haven't seen. It's something I'd be super into. Okay, well, defend mine really, I mean, I think a lot of films do deal with like just the straight up soldiers PTSD and coming back and just reallocating into life. But what I want to see is someone further into it that is still suffering for the mild, you know, um, things of it. He's gotten over it. He suppressed it for the most part, but he still suffers and is trying to raise a family and a child because you don't see that very often, especially an older kid where uh, Jacob Tremblay is like 14, He, you know, and um, so raising a teenager who is finally getting to those emotions and getting to that level that would actually, he could suffer from something very similar. And then you have that. So I, I think that changes it enough and I think it shows a different type of, of soldier story that usually isn't told it's usually they just got back they're trying to re you know acquaint with society they they hear loud noises and it affects them they can't really build a relationship with the wife it this moves past that point and now moves into actually raising a family and I think that is an important thing to show um, and yours it does the it's it's like split it's like 10 Cloverfield Lane where you're having this big reveal at the end that it relates to an older thing or to a franchise. Um, and I think your tone and the story you're telling, even though like it may be interesting to see that, would like what um, the people who go to see your movie probably aren't really fans of the remake of World of Worlds with Tom Cruise. So that reveal isn't going to mean much. I don't really, again, you don't like... It doesn't need to. Like, right, but... But like, I, I the going from the tone of World of Worlds into the tone of your movie, it's is such a shift in even the filmmaking style. You're just set in one room instead of this grand thing. I don't know if that's the best way to relate it. At least with Split, what they did with Unbreakable is it's a very similar toned movie right up until the end where some of the craziness happens, um, and then you get the reveal and it recontextualizes the movie. Your recontextualization is like, oh. Oh, Rick, what is that again? Like, can I ask you a need, question? You need quick? a lot more explanation from the psychologist, maybe, to make but that make sense. But the locket reveal doesn't do anything. No one knows who. I, yeah, but no one needs to know. If they know, they know. If they don't, they don't. They're going to talk about the actual invasion at the end, and that's what's going to really get into you know the aliens that came. My reveal, the way I did it, was more of a surprise, like as my pitch went on for us. But you kind of get that little hint. Uh, like, if I was watching, I'd be like, oh, I know who that is. And then, um, you know, because they'd say her name is Rachel from the start, but you wouldn't really make that connection. And at the end, they'd talk about, um, you it know, is revealed at the war. end. So it is revealed in a way, but it's more so than, like, just the locket. Like, they talk about the actual alien invasion, but it builds up to that. And, and I think that makes it more interesting than if it was billed as, like, the sequel to War of the Worlds. I don't need it to be. I need it to be billed as ordinary people, and then you have this reveal as the movie goes on, and I think that sells my movie better for what I'm doing. I think your movie would just be billed as, like, this is this late sequel to Saving Private Ryan, that movie that is famous for having one of the greatest openings ever, but no one gave a shit about any of the characters, especially Private Ryan. Like, you know, you don't care about Matt Damon in that movie. Spielberg is a great director, but he has his flaws, and one of those flaws is actually portraying the emotion of characters it's very much christopher nolan um level with these big directors and i don't give a shit about any other people in saving private ryan why would i be interested in seeing because what, what it does though look like afterwards 
it makes a lot more sense to if you're going to use a character from a prior movie to use a recognizable name he's the namesake of the movie so you know what you're getting into and you know the situation that he went through because it's a very famous spielberg movie you know what what he did so you don't have to do your thing where you have to give a bunch of exposition of what happened to explain but, but it I, don't, to the I don't want i don't want my movie to just be you know what happened, so this is why. My movie is going to deal with deeper themes like the original movie. Mine's you not don't know it till the end. You you yeah. said, and you can change yeah, it all you because, want, but you said it. You, like, okay, because here's my thing, Bobby. Mine's not only focusing on that. Mine is focusing on just a character, and that's a movie that I want to see. My movie is not only for – my movie is not for fans of War of the Worlds or someone that really wants to know what this character is. It's also my a movie, conversation movie, in one room for the entire time. Exactly, which as can be done very well. I just War of the World. The, what really kind of sparked this is, I don't know if any of you watched Euphoria, but the episode of Euphoria um, that they did, the special episode that they shot during COVID with um, Rue talking to Ali in a diner, that's the whole thing. It's them talking to diner, and you're enthralled the entire time because the conversation is what matters. My movie's not going to be for the average fan. My movie's more like Black Bear, which not a lot of people saw, not a lot of people will see, but Aubrey Plaza gives a fantastic performance. It's three people in a basically three people in a cabin the entire time um and it deals with um similar types of things in terms of abuse of relationships and stuff so mine is going to be more of the grief and the ptsd that someone went through from these events that we've never seen before um and i think mine take or leave the the war of the worlds thing yes that's revealed at the end but the entire movie you could watch this movie and you can change that war of the worlds to the pandemic to 9-11 to Horrible events to the recession, right? And but my it's not. Station in my movie will relate Johnny. to feelings. But the thing is, if you're if you're gonna bring in any level of of believability into a movie actually getting made, I know sometimes we throw that out the window and sometimes we don't. I at least want to bring the argument in here, where there is no way that a studio is gonna make a sequel that is a tiny, low budget thing to a big budget alien invasion movie that's never going to happen you're never never going to tie that they can't pitch that it's never going to be made mine actually could be made because it's a very popular movie a character you can revisit later and matt damon is the correct age and you can actually get people to go see maybe a smaller drama they wouldn't have seen because they know one matt damon's a big star and two they oh saving private ryan so he, the character is coming back like that actually would get people to that go see it and then it's a family drama but it's but it's still picture. very popular it didn't even win best picture yeah that's the argument you're gonna use um but uh but it's still like one known as one of the best war movies of all time people watch that all the time like i know a lot of my friends families especially those who were in war who i know a lot of friends who their families or them themselves are soldiers they watch that movie all the time it's one of their favorites because it does depict actually being in it well so it stayed in the pop culture enough that using this character yeah, makes people, sense yours doesn't make sense it wasn't even that your movie was like the sequel movie, the movie that you're making a sequel to was not even that well regarded when it came out I'm so it's not, not that big of a reveal i am just it kind of is. making ordinary people and it has a character our rule is to use a character you didn't need to make it a direct sequel to a film that's not what i'm doing I'm using a character that went through events to tell a story that we've never seen before. Yours is something I've seen over and over, and it's about a character that I didn't give a shit about in the original. I thought they should have left his ass there because all it did was kill Tom Cruise, which was the only character anyone gave Tom a Cruise? shit about. Yours, you Tom have Tom Cruise. Cruise. Tom, Tom <laughs> Hanks. Same fucking thing. Oh, by the um, way, Miller Miller is also Tom Hanks' name, and that's the son's name. There's enough connections that people know 
um, his from Saving Private Ryan. And yeah, the the reason that he made you the, the what you feel is that they should have left him there is how he feels now, and that what he felt after that situation. Here's my thing, Bobby. I don't need to see a movie about that. Like. They portrayed that as well as Spielberg could have portrayed that in the original. He didn't want them arrested. Now I'm getting deeper into the character. And, yeah, but no, but, like, I don't care about that. Mine is more, yours is very specific to a specific character in a film. Okay. It's a more so popular. yours. I understand. No, it's not. Mine is about, basically, you take the entire sci-fi genre, my movie encapsulates a character that went through some horrific event. That's all mine is. It doesn't need to be completely tied to the original. It doesn't need to really have anything to do with War of the Worlds outside of the final conversation. It's just a character that went through horrific events, her brother killed herself. That's something that it's dealing with loss in a way that we probably need to see some films like that. What? What? Really quick, Johnny, just what is the climax of your movie if people don't know the reference to War of the Worlds? Like, what is the because it seemed like that's the big reveal and that's the big oh my god moment at the end of the movie that it's a reveal that it was this thing. If people don't know that movie or if they don't care about that movie, what is the actual climax of the movie that that is a conclusion to your story you're telling? The story it kind of builds up. So starts with divorce, then it's dealing with suicide, then it is PTSD from this horrible event. And it just builds up in terms of the emotional performance, the climax of my movie is Dakota Fanning completely breaking down and having an emotional scene. My movie is not the climax is, you know, some big action scene or anything like that. Mine is more of the climax of the original film, which is dealing with like mine. It's not the original ordinary people. Basically, if you consider a climax, there's not really a climax in a film like that. It's the final act of the film. It ends with the mother maybe understanding her son a little bit better. Like, and no, she pushing him away. That's kind of, in a way, what it does. Mine is just someone coming to terms with their um, emotions, and that's what mine is leading right. up to. And mine does that, but it's not just yours someone talking the whole time in one room. Yeah, but I don't give a shit about your characters. I don't care about I don't it. give a shit about the character in your movie and either, it's that it's her. Like, I don't care that it's there. a woman there. who's dealt with um, horrible events in her life, that's fine, but um, an alien invasion. Cool. That an alien invasion in a movie that people real. didn't really care for. But it doesn't matter about the original movie. I pitched the director of Black Bear. You know how much money that made? Probably lost money. I don't care about that. I don't care about who sees it. I'm in a movie that I would watch, that I know probably Tristan would watch, maybe Joe would watch, and I think you would watch. I'm but it should make sense why you're using this character. It should actually it make sense why they're using it. Sense. The whole thing I've pitched makes sense. Your movie is just I don't know what character to use, so I'm just going to pick a famous one. I put research into it, and I made a movie about a character that could have gone through struggles and made something we haven't seen before. You made a movie we've seen over and over again. I'm not going to watch your movie. I'll just watch Deer Hunter. Well, I, that I, I actually I actually did make Ordinary okay. People, but changed enough of the family dynamic. The, the dynamic of my movie, family-wise, is very different than the original. The only thing that is the same is that the one's the son. But the mom dynamic is completely different. The father one is completely different, and you're relating them to like together. The first one focuses so much on on the on the wife and the mom not and being so cold. The important thing in the film, the father son story, in the original, is not a father son story. That's no, I know, I know. That's why I changed it. 
No, I said I, I changed it in mine enough that it keeps the family dynamic of the first one. It's a family story. I think, And you have one person in it. I think the most important part and the theme that you take from ordinary people is a young person dealing with things that they are not used to dealing with because they are young and they didn't sign up for this. You made it instead of – you flipped it to – Instead I, of focuses uh, both of them, a young person dealing with something they're not used to, your main person dealing with the issues that Timothy Hutton dealt with in the original is Matt Damon as a grown ass man with a no. I, you are you're saying that I never said that. I'm saying that's the character used as the dad who has the PTSD and can relate to his son. So you have that dynamic, but you still keep the son who went through that and is going through all the depression and PTSD, which he did not I sign up for. His dad did sign up for, but he did not. Threw together things that don't have to deal with really anything real. I don't agree, but are we, uh, yeah, and this, yeah. And, I mean, yeah, I think let's we've end gone this over the same while thing. we've been going on. <laughs> it's fun to see you guys argue and especially when you get really angry, but that went on for a little bit. I want to hear Joe's thoughts and then I'm going to go in for a bit about mine. Cause I have some complex feelings. Yeah. I think like, I, I understand, I understand like both movies, obviously, like we heard them for like 30 minutes, but, um, my thing with Bobby's is I feel like his movie is more connected almost in a way to Saving Private Ryan where if you don't care about Saving Private Ryan or you haven't seen it, you won't care. Where I feel like Johnny's will be more enhanced by having seen War of the Worlds, but I think it's like basically just a sci-fi event that happened. And it's like, you, I don't know if you necessarily need to remember her character in the original and I understand the point of uh, what Bobby brought up is we kind of play fast and loose with like would this movie ever get made like sometimes we seem to care and sometimes we don't and my thing is I feel like if it's a low budget movie that you're trying to make a sequel or a spin off or something with a big budget then I feel like studios would care but if it's like this big budget movie that you spend 15 million dollars making that I feel like it's more possible and plausible so I wasn't really concerned about that I feel like there's ways you could remind people that it's connected to War of the Worlds and show them how it's connected to War of the Worlds whether it's just a very quick you know 30 second flashback or you know something that would tie it and I, it was very close for me but I would lean towards Johnny but it's not my pick so alright look I think there's one core problem with Johnny's pitch here and I think it's that he saves the alien invasion reveal for the end and makes it kind of a twist and I think your movie could have been nearly perfect if he brought up the alien invasion like from the start and you're dealing you're seeing all these characters who have experienced some kind of life altering event of, of an alien invasion where and we're seeing them all interact and how it's affected all their lives differently including the character from more of the worlds who had a very direct experience with it but when there's an alien invasion I think every character in the story has an experience of that you compared it to COVID and I think going forward like every single person in the entire planet is going to have a story of like what I was doing during COVID what it was like how I felt so I, I think saving that for a twist was a little weak yeah we started a podcast look at that co-founders mm -hmm. all four of us <laughs> but Bobby's ultimately I feel has a problem where it's just not particularly memorable or unique in any way I think we've seen movies about soldiers having to adjust for PTSD a lot. I think 
you set it apart by using the Spielberg character, and I think you used it in an interesting way. I think people who have a preconceived idea of Saving Private Ryan will be very interested in watching this, and it could be one of those movies where you go back and you watch Private Ryan, it's even better than it was before because you have this sort of complex examination of the character. But ultimately, I think if you don't know Private Ryan, that movie feels like it's just any generic like family drama. And I think Johnny's, even if you don't know War of the Worlds, it's an interesting story angle to go at it from with an alien invasion and people having to react to it afterwards. So I think Johnny's could have been a lot better with some changes, but I think having that unique premise is what makes it shine a bit over Bobby's. So unfortunately, it hurts me to say this, and I never want Johnny to win, but it looks like Johnny won at the last second right here. Oh, oh man. I almost pulled it off. With that... The only reason I did my movie like I did was to keep it a surprise because I was just going to reveal that it was the character from War of the Worlds, but then because we knew the rule, I was like, oh, I'll make it a little twist. And I just kind of kept that of my premise, but originally, yeah, I was like, gonna... during my argument, I almost changed it, and I was about to say, you know, you know from the beginning what the character is. Like, I never really tried to hide that. You made it a lot harder to fight against, I gotta say that. <laughs> yeah. But I don't know. I mean, I think I think the way I did it is more interesting because I think you yeah. don't need if you know from the beginning that it's connected to War of the Worlds. I think that takes some people. I think out I think it. a happy medium. I think if you if you have like the thing and then you reveal it like 30, 40 minutes in, I feel like you could still explore be, that idea and I'm still keep be, that twist. I would be hinting towards it throughout, and then it would kind of reveal it, like the way I was trying to kind yeah. of do it. But it wouldn't just from the beginning be like, "Yo, the, this alien invasion happened, and now I'm a therapist." So. Yeah, yours kind of reminded me of Split, where like I got to the end of Split and I like cheered in the theater like it was a Marvel movie, and no one else in the theater reacted in any way. And I was like, "Wow, if you don't know yeah. who this character is, you probably just don't give a shit about what's happening." Right that, was, now. that was the only that was the only enjoyable part of that entire movie for me. Like that that happened, and I was like, "Oh, I like that they left this towards the end." If they did that at the beginning and then did that whole movie, I would have been like, I still would have been like, I, "This movie sucks. <laughs> I do not like this movie." All right. So. Uh... So, uh, Tristan, oh, late. any yeah. final thoughts? What was your favorite pitch of the night? It was a good night. We had some pretty close pitches, especially towards the beginning. I I really liked – there were some actually pretty good ones. I think Johnny's Three Billboards was interesting, but I don't think it did much new with it. I think that wasn't Bobby – <laughs> well, you know, the whole point is that you're making a good version, you know, and it just felt like a forgettable version. But I do think there were some pretty good – ones in here. Let me pull back my list here. One Flew of the Cuckoo's uh, Nest, I think you guys both had pretty good pitches for that. I think Johnny's was pretty impressive on that one. I also think Bobby's Bohemian Rhapsody was really good. I like the Sacha Baron Cohen which, casting. Yeah, and Which I lost into yeah. it, but you know. Very good. <laughs> and I totally went, me and, jo me, and, me and Joe had a pretty split decision on the one, so that's always interesting to have two judges yeah. who have a completely polar opposite view. It looks like I will once again be watching The Watchmen thanks to Johnny <laughs> Johnny's hard work here. The Dark Knight. You should have uh, chose Batman sixty six for me if you actually yeah. want to represent me. Not yeah, sure. I wanted to pick a movie that you didn't I didn't want to give you motivation. Hate. You know, I was like, maybe I motivate him to lose because he doesn't mm -hmm. want me to watch Watchmen. But I'll be I watching Watchmen. You enjoy your life. I don't want you to watch Steel like Joe. I want you to watch. Yeah, Steel. Joe. Joe tortured me. I watched Steel right before this, and I felt like. <laughs> have God, you seen I'm it before? Punished. No, this is my first time. Oh, watching it's so it. bad. It's it was, so bad. It was, oh I bought God. it on Amazon, and I'm like, why did I buy this on Amazon? <laughs> yeah. All right. Yeah. For me, 
like the more I think about it, I think jo- like a lot of the pitches to me were like there were no like big standout amazing pitches, but I I would probably say Johnny's one flew over the cuckoo's nest stood out for me as one I really liked, and then I also liked uh, uh fuck what was the name oh uh, Bobby's I like Bobby Sunset Boulevard but I don't know I I think for me personally this was a really difficult episode because. Yeah. No, we, are the right. we have maybe one or two good movies, but the rest of them are forgettable or not very good, and you have a lot of room to change or work with. And for these, going into it, I was like, well, I can't change a ton about this one, or I have to change a lot. Like, the reason I went with what I did for One Flew of the Cuckoo's Nest was because there's literally, it's the most pointless thing in the world to remake a story that tells what you've already seen in that. So... Yeah, mine's not exactly a, a reboot, it's a prequel, but it's the only thing I could do that would have made me interested in it. So that's that's how I, that's I feel like, you know, it's like Uncut Gems. This is how I win. The only way I win is because I pitch movies that I feel like I would go see this. Um, and some of these were hard because like Ordinary People is a fantastic film. Sunset Boulevard's fantastic. Three Billboards, I didn't like, but it's a hard one to reboot because I know Joe said, like, it doesn't matter when this came out, but it's hard to reboot movies that were recent. It really is. And yeah. even Bohemian Rhapsody, which sucked, it's hard to be like, uh, yeah, this is my version two years later. Um, so I don't know. I, I thought this was a hard episode. I, I, yeah. My personal favorite pitch that I did um, was probably my, um, uh, whatchamacallit, my One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest. I really would actually see that. And the hardest one to fight against for Bobby was, shockingly, around the world in 80 days. And because I thought, no matter what you do with the Mickey Mouse rule, you're going to lose, which ended up happening. We both lost. But Bobby put up a good fight, which was unexpected because that was a fucking horrible rule, and I was pissed that that was even included because that was, I don't know whose fucking idea that was, but it was it was idiotic to hey, do. I'm the king of idiotic decisions, all right? So yeah. And Bobby almost won with it. Maybe you just got to get better, you know, yeah, pitch maybe. better. Well, mine should have won, even though I went a direction with mine. Bobby's pitch yeah. was terrible. No, I, I know, I know, we got to wrap it up, but yeah, this was one of the hardest episodes to write pitches for because most of them, like Johnny said, were such good movies. But yeah, there are a couple of these that actually got me angry by the judges' choices because I really liked, I really liked a couple of my pitches. Huh? I get mad. Around the world in eighty days and Bohemian, you know, Bohemian Rhapsody, I thought I beat Johnny's by quite a bit, but you know what? I got close. Welcome to my than, world too. It's it's much better. It's it's much better than I did last time against Johnny, uh, for sure. And it was a close fought battle. I actually, my favorite pitch of his was the last one, Ordinary People, and I had to try to trash it. And I loved that pitch, so that was my hardest one to fight God, for you, right? Um, right. Because I thought that was a really creative way to do it. Uh, but yeah, um, fun episode. Uh, I'm glad I was closer. I got to just get one more win next time against Johnny and take him down. Yeah, and also just to clarify, um, let's see. I've never seen Ordinary People, Brokeback Mountain, Sunset Boulevard, or Around the World in 80 Days. <laughs> so thank you for those. I, I acted <laughs> like I did, but I had not yeah. seen so. No, I, I could tell you didn't see Ordinary People because you argued about things that didn't happen in it, and then I was and the I focus of the movie. Yeah, I read yeah. About and then I tried to get to it, and I was cut off. <laughs> All right. Yeah, so uh, it's a great episode. Uh, Johnny wins again. Woohoo! 
Uh, oh, and I've never read One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest. Don't know anything about the book. Yeah, I figured when you just described the one thing everyone knows about the book of that it's from Chief's point of view that I'm like, yeah, I don't think he actually read well, it. I read all the character descriptions and based all my episodes off of those yeah. because it doesn't really delve into that into the show or in, in the movie, but yeah. I've never read it. But I did download the audiobook years ago and I've just never listened to it. <laughs> yeah. yeah, Johnny's good at faking that he knows what he's talking about. Johnny. Yeah, uh, so he's yeah, faking it and being as loud as possible. No, nope. right, so I have to try to match it. It's not anyone not else working. have any final thoughts. No? All Can't right. wait to watch Johnny lose. Yeah, one day. Uh, follow us on Twitter, Instagram, and TikTok at Movie Change It Up. Uh, uh, next week, it's me versus Johnny. And, uh, yeah, it's next week, it's me versus Johnny in comic book movies uh, in honor of Justice League coming out uh, sometime in next month. Uh, yeah, that so. the 22nd, maybe? Yeah, I don't know. Something. I think it's like the 18th, it's the 18th or something. Yeah, so, yeah 18th, that's right. We're so, my whole just, life around it right now. When when Mortal Kombat comes out, I just want all of our pitches to be Mortal Kombat based. Yeah, okay, probably not. But all right, yeah, good night, everybody.